not even counting subtext. Not even counting the subtext there's, of uh, everything. Alistair, who Kitty is has a giant crush on Alistair. Kitty has a crush on Alistair, but Alistair has a has crush, crush on, on Rachel, Rachel, and Rachel's a lesbian. <laughs> but not, again, not stated, but yes. Not stated, <laughs> but she is. She is. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Jordan D. White, senior editor of the X-Office at Marvel Comics. This is a pretty big get, so I'm excited. (laughs) He is here to talk with me today about Brian Braddock, formerly Captain Britain, and now his family's sworn sword, Captain Avalon. This is a character I really love, who is somewhat obscure to non-super nerds, so I am really excited to dig deep on this with someone else who loves this character. Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Great. Thank you again for being my guest. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are you guys are in the middle of ramping up to the climax of this enormous event well technically we're done with it uh, well of course but it has to yeah. get to print and <laughs> right, everything right, else right. and right like you know there's all kinds of we're just waiting for it to come parts. out now we're waiting right no yeah. yeah i guess you're ahead of it now i was talking to teeny about something but i guess it's probably down the line about just like getting things to print or whatever i know how that works on on my end with Book publishing, you have to have everything in like six months before. Oh, yeah. Books take yeah. <laughs> way longer. Because <laughs> the book has to be designed and typeset. And all oh, yeah. When copy. we, when like we a... work with people who are writing books, they're like, yeah, I finished the book. It'll be out like three years from now. <laughs> yeah, I sell them. And then it's like, well, that I tell somebody about a book I just sold. And they go, that sounds incredible. I'm like, yeah, well, it will come out uh, in two years. I'm, I'm excited to get teeny out there with a the novel, though. As soon as you guys stop running her so ragged, and I can get some work out of her. It's fine, actually. Please continue to run her right. Yeah, we're happy to. She's doing, and I would love to see yet more. Um, so obviously, what your relationship to the X Men is is not ambiguous in the way that some of my guests are. But I would love to hear about how you first encountered the characters, how you fell in love with them, and what they sort of mean to you, generally speaking. Well. That's a very good question. So I'm coming on an X-Men podcast as the X-Men editor, and I'm choosing to talk about a non-mutant character. (laughs) I did notice that. It's the first non-mutant we've covered, although my Warren episode was kind of a Candy Southern episode accidentally. Um, And and that's because my introduction to the X-Men was through not a non-mutant book, but through Excalibur, which is not, or was not at the time, a traditional X-Men book. so I don't, oh gosh, what was the, I don't know. trying to figure out what the first issue I read was, is a real tough one, is a real mm-hmm. tough one. I have a, it was, it was a long time ago. I have a vague memory of at least one of the first ones, if not the first one, was the amazing, oh God, what issue was it? Issue four? Uh, the one with the janitor on the cover. On the cover, yeah. Yep. Yeah, issue four. Um, which is a, a, a hilarious cover. The cover is a janitor going like, oh, you want to see, and then he describes... You want sexy superheroes. dames yes. and beautiful muscular superheroes? Well, we don't, you got to look in the book for that. We're, yep. not doing, we're not giving it to you on the cover. Ridiculous, ridiculous cover. 
Classic I, Excalibur, though. I mean, I was really given is. that by a friend who was given it trick or treating. <laughs> and they knew that I liked comics, so they were like, you want this? And I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I read it and loved it. And first of all, the first page of that, just flipping in, in, at it, mm-hmm. it right now, the first page of that is classic Captain Britain, uh, old costume, you know, yeah. red, red costume. Him kissing uh, Courtney Ross. Courtney Ross, which is classic. It's got arcade in it, which absolutely introduced That's me to That's the issue arcade. with Courtney in Murder World, right? Yep. Or is it's, this the one where she gets kidnapped? And yes, then, it's the first it's, one. Is it all, it's the first one, but of a two-parter. Yep. I love that story. And of course, it doesn't end well for poor Courtney, but... It doesn't. Shock Which ending. is really sad because she is a real Chris Claremont broad who is extremely likable, extremely tenacious throughout that whole story. You've just sort of been introduced to her and you get to really like her. And, and then she survives she is, Arcade. She survives she Arcade Murder World, World, which no normal human has ever done before besides, you know, superheroes. And uh, then she is immediately murdered and replaced by her extra-dimensional duplicate Opaluna Satyr Nine. Although now that now that we've said that she has she has she did before, before previously. Yes. <laughs> I was counting her. Right, gotcha. she's done it once before, but it, in in the seventies, Captain Britain, yeah. or it was the team up, the Marvel team up. Yeah, Marvel Spider-Man. team up. That was yep. yep. Yeah. I was just looking at that. Uh, Can you believe I've read the Marvel team up with Captain Britain? See, this is where I've read that one because it's in. It's, it's in I'm sure you have. I well, just... no, I haven't. Listen, I, I wish I've read every Captain Britain story. I have mm. not. Um, there's definitely some of the real early ones I haven't read. Uh, I mean, a lot of the early Captain Britain stuff I've read is from the Captain yeah. Britain Legacy of a Legend, which has his first appearance and then it kind of skips. There's some the weird stuff in there. Up. I've I haven't read all of the 70s stuff, but I've read the ones with Betsy in them because I so like my backstory with the X-Men is my father is a collector uh, and has been since the 60s. So he has this incredible collection. And I grew up, I was a kid in the early 90s reading his back issues mostly from the 70s and 80s and like the Marvel Masterworks hardcovers and stuff because the 90s issues I wasn't enjoying as much. Uh, and I really felt connected to the Claremont and Simons and stuff in particular. Excalibur was also my favorite. I, I um, love it. See, it's so fun. It's my, just so fun. My dad was a reader, but he wasn't a collector. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there were a couple of boxes of comics that were in my, uh, my grandparents' uh, attic that I would always beg them to, to, to bring out for me. And I actually have a bunch of yeah. the comics from there, including Giant Size X-Men number one. I have oh, wow. my father's copy nice. of that. Nice. Um, but it was just lucky because it was in a box and didn't mm-hmm. get thrown out and destroyed. Um, yeah. No, like that's how I read the whole run of like Simonson's X-Factor when I was like 11 because my dad just had it in a box. And I- I'll tell you, I'm rereading it now while I do the podcast. It makes a lot more sense in my 30s because <laughs> it really is a book about your 30s. You know what I mean? Or at least sure. your late 20s if I, you know. They're, they slide sure. around. They're tied. They're yeah, no, slide it, around, it, you know? it's, it's, yes. The, the timeline pretty much Scott does say, Scott does say in the issue where he confronts Corsair about being his father that he's 30 years old. Well, he also probably says there. Ronald Reagan is president. I mean, I know. He <laughs> so. said the plane crashed when I was 10, 20 years ago. <laughs> right. But lots of things get said know, that are no longer Kitty true. Kitty Pride is 13 in that issue. So we're, we're in a, we're in dangerous waters. Okay. But so, so. My point was, though, that he was a collector or not a, mm-hmm. not a collector. He was a reader. a reader. So he didn't have there were those couple of boxes with completely random stuff in them. But I didn't have like a, runs to read or anything. So I when I got into them, I collected them much more seriously than he did. And mm-hmm. 
you know, my biggest comic book, uh, you know, uh, fandom at the time, especially, but I mean, probably still, if I had to weigh it, is Spider-Man. And but I was getting into Amazing Spider-Man somewhere around issue 300. And I, I never, ever dreamed that I would try to collect all 300 of those issues. Right. But when I started reading Excalibur, I was it wasn't right after four had come out. It, it was a while later. It was probably around issue. They, they were probably around 30 something when I first like in the Davis. No, it wasn't quite Almost. in the Alan still Davis Claremont era. there, but Claremont slash in in the changover. It was a There's couple stuff issues in the in middle between. that's weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like because yeah. I remember buying those weird issues the one where, where they Megan's go to limbo. A mermaid on the cover. Yeah, that's a oh, that's a fill in one. I'm not a great. Yeah, one. but there was the one where they meet the West Coast Avengers and they go to limbo. Oh my god, yeah. Those were right around the time when I started picking them up in shops as they came out. But again, that's not that far into it. That's only like thirty something issues. So I was like, this is achievable. And that became a thing. Now, for current readers, I don't want to say they don't, they won't understand this, but it, it won't be the same for them because well, there was no digital, there was no digital, and there was no trades to speak of. Right. So if you wanted to read a comic, you had to go to a comic shop, go into the giant bins of comics that they the had, secondhand box, yeah. find them, buy them. And so I literally, anytime my my parents took me anywhere near a comic shop, I'd be like. Let's look in the phone book. Is there a comic shop? Let's go to there and let's see if I can find another Excalibur issue that I don't have. And eventually I got that whole run and I, I completed the run right around the time that Alan Davis came back, uh, right around issue 42, I think he came back. It, it became huge to me. It was, it was, it was my favorite comic at that time. I had posters of it. I had, I was ridiculously into God, it. God, I wish there were Excalibur posters in my childhood. I, had I don't two. think I found any. I had two. One of them was a, pro- a promotional p- poster, and it was a promotional poster for the return of Alan Davis. And mm-hmm. it was the main five of them kind of going like, what the? And behind them are the shadows of a bunch of the new characters, like Micromax. Oh, like and Baron stuff. and Micromax and exactly, Cerise exactly. and those people. And so they're all kind of going like, what the? And then like uh, two years later or so, there was a big uh, double wide poster when they had the weird like futuristic logo. Mm, still yeah. in the Alan Davis run, but they had that mm-hmm. futuristic logo, and it had all of those characters kind of like jumping out together. Yeah, like hey, we're all here. It was a real. It was a really. They, both of those were really cool posters, and I loved loved those runs. Yeah, there was no really paraphernalia by the time I was collecting because I was like ninety five, ninety six, and I was buying the eighty nine. I was born in eighty eight, so gotcha. I was <laughs> sorry. I was sorry. eight, so there you go. Right. I was yeah, born no, no, not, right terrible. at the end of seventy nine. So I just sometimes I'm like, oh, sorry, everyone. <laughs> So I'm buying the 8889 stuff in those secondhand bins when in the main book, like Brian has become Britannic, like oh, in the stuff yeah. that was coming out at the time. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, I mean, like, and Lobdell intended that to be a joke is my understanding. What? Oh, the Britannic thing. Like he wanted it to be a dramatic transformation in the same way Betsy had had a dramatic transformation and it was not intended to be permanent. Oh, and it was okay. supposed to be something Brian would be embarrassed about later, which, you know what? Well, he should be, yes. If that was the goal, I think that <laughs> it was a resounding success because it was a pretty embarrassing period. I am not including the Britannic costume on the cover image for this episode. No. So feel free to Google it if you want. It's uh, very 90s. That, that, was a, that was a big thing because, yeah, so I, I mean, I was so into Excalibur. It was one of my top two comics because it was Amazing Spider-Man and... Mm. Um, well, and I don't know, two is hard because there were like 27 Spider-Man comics at that time. Yeah, but well, Spider-Man no, I get what you and Spider Man stuff <laughs> and Excalibur. I was always just an X-Men person. I was buying the stuff in the 90s as it came out, but it didn't 
move me as much. The Claremont stuff, I mean, I understand now that I was like a tiny gay child and the Claremont stuff is just full of all this really intense coded <laughs> queer sexuality that uh, I was connecting with. It felt like he was, you know, whispering some kind of secret to me that only I understood about Kitty and Rachel or Storm and Yu-Gi-Oh and, or Storm and Callisto or some of the men sometimes or, you know, sure. always a certain energy happening. And I also, uh, I connected really profoundly with the mutant minority metaphor. I think that for me, the book doesn't quite, I, I like the earlier stuff. I'm not crazy about the sixties run, but the, it's not, it's not ideal. It's not, I've read it's not it great. recently. It's it not wasn't great. great. I know you inspired me to do a reread, um, with your Twitter thread with all of those analyses. Yeah. I'm not crazy about that. I think it's better once Thomas takes over, although 65 is truly insane as you pointed out. Yeah. There's it, the whole thing is bananas. Yeah. <laughs> But I like, I really, really like Giant Size Up Through Dark Phoenix. But for me, the book really does click into place when it's more about Storm and Kitty and it's more about the experience of being a minority and it's that stuff. That's always what I attach to more. And so I guess I followed Kitty into Excalibur and Excalibur was just the one I liked best because it was fun and it was funny. And honestly, in retrospect... Brian Braddock was so hot. (laughs) Everybody in the book was hot. Because Alan Davis draws the hottest people that have ever existed. Yes, yes. It is his unique skill somehow to draw comics, because Excalibur was also lighter in tone, except when it wasn't, like when Courtney Ross gets murdered by her alternate reality duplicate. Absolutely. The tone of it overall is lighter. He creates this comic that simultaneously feels very wholesome, but also very erotic. Like someone on Twitter, when I was talking about how I was rereading some Excalibur stuff today before this episode, said, man, you know, those Alan Davis issues, when I was a kid, it kind of felt like I had somehow managed to find pornography. Like, there was something about it. Well, they're gorgeous. And he was talking about Megan and Rachel and Kitty and Courtney and all of the beautiful women. But there's really something for everyone in there. Everyone is just gorgeous in a way that I think male superheroes often, especially at that time, were not drawn. He aestheticizes everyone. They all have such such ridiculous 80s hair, too. I love it. I it's, love it, though. It's so big. I want Rachel to get that haircut back <laughs> Oh, God. Now. You might be able to pull that off now. She could do it. That's not the mullet. It's back in. That look is back in. She could do it. But um, but oh, but 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 again, even Brian though he had that like Brian's was a little much. But poofed out. But I wasn't looking at the hair. You know what I mean. (laughs) So you said you you followed Kitty into Excalibur. Yeah, and then I fell in love with Megan, who became my favorite. She's amazing. One of my all time favorite characters. I died when I saw the December Excalibur solicit. With her in costume. The five characters in this book, the five main characters, I should say, because there's a ton of characters, obviously. Um, But the five main characters in this book are kind of my favorite X characters of all time. And I followed Mm -hmm. them backwards into X-Men. Backwards, right. Um, Like, so uh, to me, reading about, reading the Claremont X run, I was like, oh, great, Kurt's here. And then when Kitty shows up, it's like, oh, great, Kitty shows up. Great, okay, cool. At first, when I first was collecting, obviously the Davis and Claremont stuff was the gold standard for it. But then when Alan Davis took it over, you know, again, I I don't mean this any disrespect to Chris Claremont, but when Alan took over writing and drawing, I I think that's the best the book ever got. Like he, he managed to take every thread, bring it together so perfectly in a way that makes sense and justifies it. There's one or two places where he kind of flips off some other stories. Yeah. (laughs) There's a, there's like one part where he, where, 
what I forget what book he was making fun of where he was, I think maybe, no, I can't remember which one, where it was like one of the Excalibur super specials. Oh, it was the possessed mm-hmm. where he literally was like, that person is too fat to possibly exist. How could we ever have a, have believed this happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, and things like that. But overall, he was able to weave things together that didn't necessarily seem like they were going to come together. And what's weird is, as I traveled back through Brian's history, mm-hmm. I found the same to be true there. I am a huge fan of Alan Moore. I love Alan Moore. But I don't think Alan Moore's Captain Britain is the best Captain Britain. I kind of go with the Davis Delano stuff. I have a couple different opinions. I think that Jasper's Warp is brilliant. Of course. And I think that the book wouldn't work if that wasn't, if Moore, if Moore's arc wasn't there, the book would not work going after it, in my opinion, because it doesn't work before it, particularly. Well, it's funny you say that, though, because this trade right here, before Excalibur, Captain Britain, Davis and Delano doesn't have the more stuff and I think have any of it. for it. Uh, but this is the one I read. I guess. This I... is the one I read and I fell in love. I had no clue what the more stuff was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just... I don't know. You're right. I mean, you're right. They they have an introduction. They tell you a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a serious tonal difference between the Crooked World storyline and then what comes afterward. What I would say essentially is I think that the Crooked World story is probably the best story in the Captain Britain run, that classic run. But to me, Davis as a writer with Delano and then Davis doing it himself after Delano left the book, Davis really gets Brian and Megan in a way that I don't think Moore was as interested in getting. Yeah, Moore was telling a more cosmic story. I am one of like four people on Earth who own the Captain Britain omnibus, which Marvel should reprint now that Brian and Betsy and Megan and everybody else and Saturnine are big deal characters. I don't know what the deal the is moment. with that. I don't know. They I mean, gotta reprint that. There's gotta be. Listen, I, I I'm not telling tales out of school. I, I don't know why. No, I'm why sure you don't. But it's going for like three hundred bucks. But I'm sure there's honestly, I'm sure there's a reason because those stories are not even on Marvel Unlimited. So right, it's so hard to find reason. the Daredevils and all of that stuff. I'm sure there's rights things that are complicated with Marvel UK. But anyway, in the beginning of the omnibus, there's a uh, letter from Alan Moore in 2001, where he's like, well, I just reread all of these and I'm shocked to discover that they're pretty good because I haven't (laughs) looked at them since I wrote them and I didn't think they would be any good. And it turns out they're actually quite good and I'm pleased with them. Well, because didn't he like start halfway through a story and everything? Well, so yeah, so Dave Thorpe, drops him onto oh and you're gonna have to excuse me this is a running joke on the podcast but since i was a child i have always said earth 616 and earth 238 and i know that in the marvel office it's 616 238 238 is linda mcquillan's world oh gotcha gotcha gotcha. sorry that storyline takes place on so yeah we just had a conversation about this on the x slack recently because well because tv and i on the first episode argued that it is in fact 616 we, we feel strongly about this. I understand that canonically now it's 616. Well, depends who you ask. Well, on Twitter, everybody keeps telling me I'm an insane person. Yes. It, listen, it it's 616. Better. It's 616. But that's not canonical. Better. And the reason you could say, I mean. Well, it's text, right? So yes, yeah, in exactly. order for it to be canonical, someone will have to say it. Well, actually, I think someone said it in the MCU in one of those, in the Spider-Man See, movie. But that doesn't make any sense. No, I know. Because. Because the Marvel Cinematic Universe Earth is not Earth 616. Right. So that can't they be the same be, world. No. Um, well, I'll tell you what, in defense of you saying 616, I do say, and I think correctly, that this world that you and I are in mm-hmm. is Earth 1218, 
Well, there you go. See, I just, it's like how I say issues of a comic. I would say Excalibur 616 if it was issue number 616. I wouldn't say right. issue 616. So that's just how my brain read it, as though it was like an issue of a comic. Well, 1218 is a weird way to say 1218. Or but it's how I would say it if I is were it? reading a number to somebody. Yeah. People are like, well, it's like an area code. I'm like, okay, but we don't toke up at 420. <laughs> like, you you know, we say things different ways depending on context. It's true. So. It's true. And, and also the reason, the real reason it's Earth 1218 is because I named it that and it's my birthday. <laughs> I do know that. I knew that fun fact. So Dave Thorpe actually intended for 616 to be the crooked Earth that this oh. story opens in. He named it that by taking 666, the number of the beast, and subtracting 50, which he thought was a good round number, which coincidentally got him to 616, which is the actual number of the beast. He didn't know that, but 666 is a mistranslation. I was a classics major. That is pretty funny. So anyway, 616 is the number of the beast. Wait, does he say that that's Crooked World? Did, have we been? No, it oh, was okay. not something he ever used on page, but it was in his notes that more took because Thorpe got fired essentially because gotcha. the political metaphors he was using the editorial team was not crazy about the direction he was taking things so he had chosen that number as like the devil's number for this earth that was theoretically holding back all of the other earths and right, this right. corrupted world but more like to the sound of it so in Saturnine's trial at the Dimensional Development Court which is the first time you hear the numbers of the earths used She's the first person to say 616 on panel is Saturnine. That makes sense. Because she refers to Brian as the Captain Britain of Earth 616. And Brian's like, what is she talking about? There are people in Marvel editorial who hate that. Who hate that it's called 616. I've heard yeah. that. I've, I know Brevoort doesn't like it. He I think it's not. great. And he intended that after Secret Wars, it would To get rid be, of that? Yeah, it would be gone forever. And didn't stick. Didn't stick. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry if you, what are you going to call it? Prime Earth? Because that's a DC thing. Like, there's no good thing to call it. I think it's fine to just, if you don't like it, just say our universe and other universes. And he he always goes, he would always go, well, it's not Earth 616 anymore because it was just, everything was destroyed. And I went, you're wrong. And here's why. Because you don't know why they call it Earth 616. It doesn't right. mean it's the 616th one created. No. I said it it, 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 it vibrates at 616 like reality hertz or something. And <laughs> yeah, that's we have why. no idea. <laughs> it's got a measurable number. And also, at this point, Secret Wars destroying the multiverse and recreating it, it's still 616 because Moira's now destroyed Earth 616 like nine times upon her death oh. and restarted it. There are times when I think about how did Secret Wars interact with Moira's life? Moira, I've and wondered that myself. Like, I'm like, wait, but, and it just doesn't, listen, it doesn't fit. I don't get it. I feel like Hickman must know, since he wrote both stories, that question was posed to me and I said, well, if the multiverse was eradicated, then she couldn't have reset her timeline because the timeline didn't exist. And then when the multiverse was reconstituted, it put her back where she was. So she never died basically like she was in a void when she recreate yes creating the multiverse again that part makes sense it's the part where she dies it's the part where the, but she doesn't die the multiverse just stopped that's it's a tricky one man it's tricky you got i mean it's like we gotta just allow it or she was like in a no place at the time and just you know <laughs> yeah we certainly like, what listen the fuck is we certainly have to and i guess technically if you want to you could say that before secret wars happened moira didn't have this power 
Well, that's <laughs> another option. There is a fan question. Most of the fan questions we got were about Brian, but one of them was about House of X, Powers of Ten, and about Moira. And it's not spoilery. It's it's just sort of a an interesting question that came out of last week's episode about Beast, where Spencer Ackerman and I talked about Xavier's dream and Xavier's political philosophy, mm-hmm. and how Moira and the revelations about Moira have called certain things into question. And we'll get to that, but. I, I do think that when did Moira get this power? Is in, has she always had this power? Is this timeline the timeline we've always been in? Which I, I take it to be. Yeah, I mean, sure. But I did go, I have been rereading Excalibur recently, and I got into the later stuff. And there are a couple scenes where Moira and Xavier are alone together, and she is crying in his arms about being the only human to get the legacy virus. In all these other scenes, I'm like, well, they're putting on a show for everybody around them. Those scenes, I'm like, there's no one here. And then I was like, is this the Shi'ar Golem? (laughs) Does the Shi'ar Golem need to believe it's actually Moira? And so Xavier is lying to it because that feels pretty mean. But that's the only free idea. I won't sue. No prize for me. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, yeah, I think that Golem... uh that he threw in there was a, was a, a very resourceful thing. Oh, it was absolutely. A, a very useful yeah. Idea. And I love, I love it because it just adds to all of the Jewish shit in the X-Men that mm-hmm. I love. That's true. So I was like, of course the Shi'ar have a golem. <laughs> like Chris Claremont created them. And everything Chris Claremont created has like secret Jewish allegories underneath it. Going back to the transition from Excalibur to X-Men. Yeah. I will say it was tough though, because I loved that that Alan Davis run so much, mm-hmm. and it's so it's so its Unique. own thing. Like, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, although I will say, I, I have heard people insult it—not his run, but the whole run, the whole all of Excalibur—by saying it's a ripoff of Justice League uh, in- International (JLI). Well, Justice League International, with all due respect to Keith Giffen and J.M. Demetrius, who are geniuses, and I love that run, is a ripoff of the Chris Claremont X Men. So, <laughs> well, I mean, a little a little sillier. As are Wilkin and President Teen Titans. I'm not saying a ripoff right. in a bad way, but if we're going to go there, the two companies were influencing each other as they always do. But because it's such a very s- specific feel and flavor, when it ended, that was a hard pill for me to swallow. Like I, I had a subscription to the book by that point. Mm-hmm. It was so it would come to me in the mail, and they were saying like, "Hey, guess what? Like, good news! Like, it's finally an X Men book. Yeah, right. it's going to count. It's going to be tying in with all these other X Men things." And I was time like, for onslaught. Wait. I'm like, no. This and is then not it what started happening. Yeah, exactly. Right. As, soon, as soon as it started happening, I was like, "Oh, it made this book like those books." And it's not that those books are bad. It's just they're not this book. My understanding, and I learned this recently. I didn't know this is Excalibur was edited outside of the X office. Oh, okay. I, I'll buy that until the Lobdell run, sure. like through Claremont and then Davis's entire term on the book. It was edited outside of the X office and then they brought it into the X office. Terry Kavanaugh edited the Alan Davis run. Yeah. But I don't know who edited it after that. So it doesn't really help. (laughs) So I think essentially it was brought maybe around Phalanx Covenant into the X office. Yeah, no, that was right about because I I still got those issues in my subscription uh, Mm -hmm. when those started coming in. And like, I'm not going to say that. There was nothing of value in no. there. There's fun stuff in there, but it was not the same. I particularly enjoy the Warren Ellis Excalibur. Sure. I it was a, just a different a lot thing. Of good stuff in the later run of Excalibur, but it's not the book that I fell absolutely in love with as a little kid when Agreed. I got those back issues. So, like, when you asked me to pick a character for this, mm-hmm. it had to be an Excalibur character, and I kind of wrestled with which one. 
because I do love all five of them so yeah. much. We floated Megan initially. There, there was an idea of Megan. I mean, listen, before I even get to Megan, let me just say, for a minute, I, I thought maybe Kitty, or Kate, as we now call her. Yeah, that's that's driving me crazy. It is a cute nod to Days of Future Past, but I can't get it in my head. It's That is also part of why we did it. Um, right. I think and I'm sure a it's a thing. story arc and we'll figure no, no, it no. out. No, no, no. I just meant, I meant because like, um, because I think that's a real human thing. Uh, oh, I have a sister named Katie who insists now on being called Cat, and I can't get that right either. And same I'm trying. Same I am trying. Literally the same, not Cat, but Katie but is something my, else. my sister. Right. And I've heard people get real, real uh, intense about it, about like, you know, comparing it to other situations that are like yes, right. identity issues. Personally, I don't think it's that big of a thing i think it's just more like you're saying it's that these are the x-men are her family that's how i feel about it is if someone calls her kitty and they're her family it's like i still call my sister katie and it's not a big deal but out in the world she goes by cat there are other situations obviously in which you would take on a new name and your family would also right if they respect you call you by the new name exactly i absolutely understand that and i i had a listener write in actually to say that and and to note that they would like if I could respect the name thing because it vibes that way. And I said, I will absolutely try it. The policy I have now that they said was a fair compromise is I am going to say Kitty with all the classic stuff because there's just no way in my brain if I'm talking about a story where her name was Kitty, it's not going to be Kitty. But when I'm talking about the present, I'm going to try to call her Kate. I have a, one of the other things I do besides X-Men comics is I have a podcast about Sailor Moon. Oh my, dude, why? (laughs) <laughs> I, so at 13 at 13 i bought fan subs on vhs off the internet like i am a sailor moon head okay we well, can talk about sailor moon for hours have me on your sailor moon podcast right? well it's on well I, I i can't because we only have women as guests because oh, well, we're two fair. men talking about sailor moon and that's we don't fair want... that's fair <laughs> um but also but we're are actually... you both straight because you could have a gay man we, could be... we... i could do like a, an episode on you know, joy site or something <laughs> we have heard that argument but we have been we have held pretty fast that's um, fair. That's fair. But we're actually um, we're 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 a lot of the way through it. We are 190 something episodes into. Oh wow! It. So you're yeah. But when I started watching Sailor Moon, it was in the 90s when it was the Deke dub. So right when I fell in love with Sailor Moon as a concept, Sailor Moon's name was Serena. Was Serena. And so, if you listen to the podcast. By now, I'm used to calling her Yusagi because we watch it in right. Japanese now and we talk As about it. As you should. Right. But for the beginning of the podcast, most of the time I'm calling her Serena because that's who she was in my heart. The transition from Ray to Ray and Amy to Ami and Mina to Minako was probably easier. But Serena to Usagi is a... Uh, it's a pretty big It's a pretty big leap. Yeah. I was that gay nerd on the internet getting my fan sets, though. So I have always... I mean, <laughs> certainly when I first watched it on Cartoon Network, it was the deep dub. I, w- I was watching it. When it was in syndication. Yeah, I mean, I think I was too. But when I was like rewatching it obsessively and then I was like, I need to see the gay people. This is basically what happened. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Because we did, when I when the original they hadn't run, dubbed, they didn't get They there. hadn't yep. dubbed S, right. We heard rumors. And then after I had seen the Japanese version, they did the cousin thing, which was not helpful because it just made them gay cousins who were fucking instead of just lesbians so who weird. were fucking. They're so still weird. clearly having sex. So it's not... It doesn't really ameliorate the situation. In fact, it just makes it strange. Yeah, if you if anybody wants to hear that, my the podcast is Sailor Business, and it, it's super fun. Me and Kristen. I will that. definitely give that a listen. I don't know if I can commit to 197. No, episodes, of course. Yeah, there's going to be at least 200. So of course. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And, and listen, I will be honest with you. 
they're 20 episode 20 minute episodes of sailor moon we usually go for like an hour and a half talking about yeah this, no so. well, that's, that's the thing is i this podcast always runs long i used to call them giant size the episodes of this podcast if they ran more than two hours and now they all usually run more than two hours so i've just given up <laughs> the thing is if you're signing up to listen to a character by character x-men podcast that deep dives through a character's entire history what i've learned is that anybody who has signed that compact and is in for that is willing to listen for a while and I imagine that the same is true if you are listening to a Sailor Moon podcast 20 years after Sailor yeah. Moon. Is it now yeah. 30? God, how long ago? Uh, it was 1992 it came out. So yeah, it's getting close yeah. to 30. It's getting close. God. But so anyway, I, I brought... But we digress. <laughs> we, we did a lot. We were talking about Kitty. Yes, we were talking about Kitty and how the name is hard to, to grok in your head. And I agree. I think that, but I I like think that Kitty would be offended if anyone calls her Kitty who she loves. Right. Because those are all people who know her as a kid. So at, at that time, I mean, uh, listen, I'm going to... I know I'm not alone in this and i know in some people's opinion they're going to roll their eyes hard at this but i'm one of the dudes who was in love with kitty pride now right. at the time she was an older woman <laughs> at <the> right time, <laughs> at the time i was like i mean what it depends again what year yeah was, i was say. talking to my dad and my dad never really warmed to the kitty period under claremont because he hated all the speeches she would give He's like, she's 15. It's ridiculous. Right. I was like, we have to understand, Dad, when I was reading that, I was like 11. So she was a grown-up. Exactly. This this is the end. I'm just, I just looked at the years in the last volume of Marvel Visionaries Excalibur, Alan Davis. So, th mm -hmm. so that ended in 92, 93. Yeah. So I would have been 12 and 13. So when I first started reading about her, I was probably like 10 years old. Right. So she's an adult. <laughs> and I was head over heels in love with her ridiculously in love with yes her. and as we have learned from many writers over the years men who are in love with kitty pride are not the people we necessarily want to talk to about not kitty always pride. so i respected your choice not to do that i think i probably uh, will have a female guest for that episode of course i've done episodes on female characters with male guests but that's one where for a lot of female comics fans kitty pride was the inroad in a very specific seeing yourself kind of way because mm -hmm. i mean when claremont did that it was unheard of for this teenage girl to be the star yeah of the book that way so i think that that was really cool i mean he did a lot of things that were unheard of absolutely not all that has aged perfectly but that's <laughs> one that i think aged well but so yeah you settled on brian I settled on Brian because brian brian probably at the time was my least favorite of the mm. of the five well, he's not written super sympathetically, which I think is interesting. You're absolutely right. But then, two reasons. One is that Alan Davis, like I said, tying everything together, addresses that very yes. specifically. Mm -hmm. Th that he, yes, he's been screwing things up for the entire run. And that's because somebody made him screw up. <laughs> somebody basically cursed him to screw up. Yeah, a complaint that's been leveled at the current run of Excalibur, which obviously I'm a fan of because I liked it so much. I signed the writer as a client is that you know betsy keeps taking l's essentially like betsy can't get a win and i keep telling people first of all we're not that many issues in secondly have you read the original excalibur because the original excalibur run is essentially brian braddock being humiliated in public constantly and all of the other characters going brian you okay and he's not okay his costume has been destroyed and he's been dressed in tiny little shorts and he just got arrested for soliciting because he looks like a hustler. Yep. 
his power is just deactivated in an opportune moment. And, and he's, he's struggling with struggling with alcohol. A bunch. And he's an alcoholic who's yeah. horrible to his girlfriend. Yeah. And cheats on her, which is crazy to see a superhero do. Especially at that time. Wait, wait, I'm trying to think. When did he... With... See, he sleeps with Satyr 9. Oh, he does. When the she's evil Courtney. Satyr 9 yeah, yeah, when yeah. she's posing as Courtney. Oh, but even before so that, he's going on dates with Courtney. He's having an emotional affair. Yep. And he's saying to Kurt, who Kurt has a crush on Megan. But would never, I don't think. No. Well, they have that one, oh, the almost kiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they stop themselves. But Kurt has these feelings for Megan. And Brian is having a drink and complaining to Kurt. It's a very sexy book, like you're saying. Oh, it's it's an extraordinarily <laughs> sexy book. And meanwhile, frankly, Brian and Kurt often have a vibe. At one point, they fist fight over Megan, and it's very yeah. There's there's that triangle, but then really square because you have Sat Your Nine pretending to be Courtney, who he's right. Into. There's then there's the other one, which is well, again, not not even counting subtext, not even counting the subtext. There's of uh, everything. Alistair, who Kitty. Is, has a giant crush on Alistair. Kitty has a crush on Alistair, but Alistair has a has crush, crush on, on Rachel, Rachel, and Rachel's a lesbian. <laughs> but not, again, not stated, but yes. Not stated, <laughs> but she is. She is. Sure. I'm hoping you guys will... You, you don't have to say anything, but I am hoping you guys will finally state that like 30 years into her publication at some point, because... She's had... She's had a couple boyfriends, but listen... Like, one of them was Nightcrawler. That was weird. That was weird. I said this in the Bobby episode. Dating Polaris is gay. Like, there are certain heterosexual relationships that are not... Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's like, that's not, you know... That feels like a real big insult to her, but okay. It's not! It's that gay men love Polaris. She's larger than life. She has vast (laughs) cosmic power. Dating a Chris Claremont heroine is often... And she's not an originally Chris Claremont heroine, obviously. But she sort of presages all of that. And in Giant Size... When she and Storm link up, shoot Krakoa into space. That was Claremont's suggestion. Plus, ha- again, having just read the original 60s run, he, I know that, I, listen, I know I'm reading into it. I know they weren't sitting Bobby. there going, Bobby's no, gay. No, I know, but, but he's gay. he protests way too much. Yeah, like he's he, the only one who doesn't want to look at Dean. And then he's even the dating one. Polaris, he goes so over the top of going like, no one can even go near her ever. <laughs> also, there's this incredible moment when she first comes out of the shower because she's washed her hair and like she reveals that her hair is green and she's been dyeing it. Mm-hmm. She's like nude in a robe, this incredibly hot chick, and Bobby has like left. He did not wait in the apartment for the beautiful girl he rescued to finish taking a shower. Yeah, it's true. And then she meets Alex. And immediately is it. And then and then she's constantly going like, I'm not his girl. Anyway, yeah, like it's. Yeah. One of the one scenes that Chuck Austin wrote that I truly love is Lorna's bachelorette party, where she's saying basically, well, Gene, you know how it is. Like Summer's boys, they're very loyal. They're not incredible in bed. <laughs> and uh, she goes, and that's really all the experience I've had. And Northstar's like, you never slept with Bobby? And she's like, you don't have sex with Bobby. <laughs> I think that's really good. <laughs> um, but anyway, I digress. So the, so the Brian, again, at the time, I was like, Brian is the fuddy-duddy who is getting in the way of the fun characters right. doing the fun things. For me, it helped that he was really beautiful to look at. But sure. he was also my least favorite outside of like aesthetic pleasure of the group. The retcon of him being cursed helped. And then also reading the backstory, like I said, that Davis Delano book I loved. Mm -hmm. Him meeting Megan and... and His relationship with Megan hits a lot harder in Excalibur if you've read the Captain Mm -hmm. Britain stories where Mm -hmm. she's a gremlin. Like it makes, it just makes a lot more sense. And then, and then plus just growing to 
more to like the idea of characters who struggle mm-hmm. and are and screw up, like characters who aren't perfect. Which is just not to say any of the other characters are perfect. No, but I love his alcoholism arc. I think it's very realistically yeah. drawn. I've always liked it more than the Tony Stark alcoholism arc. I thought uh, Carol Danvers's that Kurt Busiek did is really good. Like, I mean, Brian had just lost his sister, as far yeah, as he's aware. And, and, and you find out that he has a history of been drinking, but that he's kept it kind of under control. And once his sister is apparently dead... All bets are off. And he really falls into a pit and it's horrible. And he makes it out. I really appreciated in Ten of Swords when there was just a little throwaway line where he's at Saturnine's feast mm-hmm. and they're all eating unicorns or whatever. And he's like, just to clarify, like this drink you're giving me, it's not an intoxicant, right? Like yep. just to stress, he's still sober. It's been 30 years of publication now and he's still sober. I think that that's really cool. It is, that is a thing that I think uh, sometimes with, with characters who haven't had that arc uh, addressed mm-hmm. recently, people can forget. Yeah. And I'm glad yeah. we were able to get that in there. Well, in general, I think Brian's a character a lot of people had forgotten. I really loved Captain Britain in MI13, but mm-hmm. obviously it didn't run that long. No. After that, he and Megan just kind of got shuffled off into the background they run the braddock academy they'll pop up for sort of yeah. company-wide events but they weren't really around so as an excalibur fan seeing brian and megan and saturnine who is one of my favorite characters and the fact that we have an event centered around opal luna saturnine like if you told my little 12 <laughs> year old gay self i would have absolutely freaked out can i say though one note okay uh, just like before you guys go to the trades her hair it's not the right color. It's not white enough. It's not white enough. It's been driving me crazy. Cause and everyone's like, she looks like Emma Frost. I'm like, she's not supposed to. Yeah, she used to be whiter. You're right. Megan calls her the silver-haired cow repeatedly. Oh, that's true. You're right. And, and in she, her first appearance, it's like gray. In the, her first appearance, it's gray. Yeah. And in the Paul Moore Davis and then Delano and Davis and then just Davis run, it's literally white. It's like pure stark white. Is it? Wow. It doesn't have to go that far because in Excalibur, it's definitely platinum blonde, but it's like Jean Harlow platinum blonde. Sometimes it changes. My point is just, I think it would help visually distinguish her from Emma Frost if it was icy or whiter or platinum again. That's fair. And it's supposed to be so unnatural a hair color that Courtney Ross dyed her hair auburn in college because she thought people didn't take her seriously. It's supposed to really make you stop in your tracks. Right now, she and Brian have the same hair color. <laughs> <laughs> and she and Megan and Brian are all the same blonde. Well, maybe she just wants to be more like Brian. Maybe. I don't know. You guys didn't do this. It's been happening for a while now. I'm just registering my Saturnine complaint about her hair color. There, there was a period for Brian where I think between... I'd have to think about it if it was this whole time. But basically between the original Excalibur and, well, I mean, I want to say and now, but like <laughs> some people might say the future it still hasn't happened where people didn't really know what to do with them and they kept trying new things it's a lot like warren and bobby after the 60s run of the x-men where they did not know what to do with those characters and so they shoved them into the champions and then the defenders and then until they came up with x-factor they didn't have any idea what to do with right because there was i mean there was a, a little bit where he was the the king of otherworld otherworld after excalibur was canceled right right where uh and then he was the bizarre thing with Kelsey Chuck Austin again, Chuck Austin riding into battle again. Chuck Austin on the Avengers creates Lionheart, right. Kelsey Lee, who's the new Captain Britain. And Brian and Megan are the Merlin and Roma replacements right. who test her, except they give her this weird test. It's, a, it's a messed up test. Fair. It's a messed up. I, test. They wouldn't do that. It doesn't make any sense. 
It was it was a messed up way to use it. Yeah, and she has been shunted off into like comics limbo where she belongs. No disrespect to her as a person, but like that character's a mess. She was in because then well, was she in something recently? No, no, no. Oh god, no. Oh god, no. Uh, yeah, I, no. I was just thinking. I think well, I think what happened was because then Chris Claremont brought Brian back as Captain Britain. Uh, yeah, and he used Kelsey with the Sage New Excalibur. Um, thing. Yeah, in New Excalibur. Yeah, which I wasn't crazy about. I didn't work on New Excalibur, but one of the very first things I the, literally the first comic I worked on. You worked on the New Exiles. Right. With the first comic I ever worked on was Ex- Exiles number ninety nine, and that series ended with a hundred. And then before New Exiles launched, there was a, a mini series that I did mm-hmm. work on as an assistant called X Men Die by the Sword, which is yes. it's a crossover of Excalibur and Exiles, so they called it X Men. <laughs> yeah, which is. No, it's it's hilarious. It's like it's called X Men Die by the Sword, and the only X Men in is Betsy Braddock, right? Who is a Captain Britain well, character? Oh, I mean Sage. Well, and Sage. Dazzler. Okay, that's fair. Well, but Sage and Dazzler. Here's the problem. Talk about characters nobody knew what to do with. Right. Besides, well, I mean Sage was a character who didn't like. Who cares about Tessa besides Chris Claremont? No one did. So he reinvents her as Sage, and then he just sort of took her with him wherever he was going. And Dazzler was a character who, since the '90s, had been relegated to the dustbin and he kind of brought her back part of the reason that i am fond of betsy but also sage is because they were both in new exiles and Mm -hmm. and i know new exiles is not a book that a lot of people love but it was again it was one of the first things i worked on at marvel yeah and those were like the real marvel 616 versions of those characters so i got really into them i remember i was so happy betsy was back and Mm -hmm. then i was annoyed that she wasn't back back right you know what i mean we tried to give her pants i liked the pants and it didn't stick I didn't like that she was finally alive again, but wasn't on 616. That annoyed me. But sure. I was happy to see Tessa doing stuff, Sage doing stuff. I like that character. She's fun. She's fun. Her powers are weird. a little weird in that way that Chris Claremont characters sometimes can be. Like the jumpstart power she has that she hasn't used now in like 20 years is odd. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. Did she, Was the last time she used them on, on Slipstream and Lifeguard? Lifeguard? I think. Yeah. <laughs> But I really like the way she's written in Percy's X-Force right now. Absolutely. But I would love to see her in the field. I, I, rec- I think I recommended her for that gig because I was like, it's perfect. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect. And um, I don't know. I would love to know more about her history. We still don't really even know her name. Shaw called her Tessa. That's like not even her. So here's a weird thing name. about Brian. Yeah. Uh, or rather, I guess Brian, more his family. Uh, in reading, I, I read some of the really old stuff yeah uh, i read the first appearance which i had i think i i actually had never read before prepping for this podcast and looked at some of the other early stuff and i looked at some of the um the wikipedia stuff as well just yeah. to look at some stuff and you know again relatively early on we get betsy although again i haven't read a ton of the claremont stuff because that's not been reprinted right yet. she comes in once claremont takes over the the title yeah. and then when when they bring when she comes back in in the more stuff it's it's actually very funky. Yeah, thicker than water in the Daredevil. Yeah, because they've never. They're like we haven't seen each other in years. Correct. He has no idea she's a psychic yet. Well, he, she had precognitive visions in the earlier stuff. Did she? she wasn't okay. a telepath yet. Gotcha, gotcha. She has to explain. Oh, I'm a telepath now. Also, I'm a secret agent who's working for the psychic division and a model. He knows she's a model. Does he? Okay. But he doesn't know her hair's purple, which right. is why he's really thrown by that. She, meanwhile, is confused by how big he's got <laughs> he does just spontaneously get big 
Oh yeah, no, it's he's it's very like Captain. It's like trim. Captain America, actually. He's like yeah. a nerd who then gets empowered and becomes. Human. No, no, but I don't even mean that. I mean in his red costume, oh, he's yeah. pretty trim. And then yeah, when and he then gets Alan the, Davis, he just balks up. Alan Davis based the visual design on the British comic character Garth, who was this huge blonde guy, and made him just a lot huger than he had been when Herb Trimp was drawing. I much prefer it. I much prefer. I do it see. Well, he, please, that's why I, I mean. <laughs> Well, I much prefer it also because I feel no, like it sets I, him apart. A little more. That's yes, why I also no, love that helmet. When we when we talked about giving I him a new costume for need a helmet for Avalon, we were like, we got to give him something like that helmet because mm-hmm. it's like such so distinctive. Nobody yeah. else has that. Um, but what I was going to say was so so. There's all this stuff about Betsy. In none of that did I see them mention Jamie at all. And I was like, where did he come from? <laughs> so Jamie is in, it's it's funny, actually. In the 70s stories, Jamie is all over the 70s stories. He and he and okay. Brian are really close. Oh. And he's this very cool, nice guy who's a race car driver. I, I knew that. And Brian adores him. And they are like thick as thieves. And Jamie and Betsy are constantly getting kidnapped by supervillains. That's like the repeatedly the plot device. Betsy will have a precognitive vision that oh, causes some kind these. of adventure. And then Betsy and Jamie will be kidnapped by the Red Skull or whoever, and Brian has to save them. Oh, I gotta get these. I gotta it's get good. These. And Betsy's constantly getting possessed and like having to swing axes at them and stuff. It's good. It, it's crazy. And I think I think there might be a British Panini collection that, that I can try to find for these. But... Betsy in those is one hundred percent recognizable as Betsy. She's like, oh Brian, you're such a dork. Like I fly planes. Like she's very much Betsy <laughs> from the word go. But Jamie is unrecognizable because they bring him back like, later. Yeah, yeah. As yeah, but even before that, you find out that he's been human trafficking the whole time. Like that he's <laughs> a real bad guy. <laughs> right, right. When he's kidnapped by uh, by Doctor Crocodile. Crocodile. Yep, yep. Yeah. So he's definitely a bad guy. But in those early issues, and it's because he's boring. I mean, you have to do something with it. Betsy is not boring. She just doesn't get to. He's literally a human trafficker. That's yeah, he's so truly terrible. heinous. Yeah, he's heinous. I mean, the fact that he is now completely insane is the only reason he can be a remotely likable character. Because before he was driven completely insane, he was <laughs> a monster. And so now you can just be like, well, you know, he barely remembers human trafficking. He has his mind <laughs> is fractured into a million pieces by I... his reality warping mutation. What I love is the way that it calls back to Jim Jaspers, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. And I can't wait to see the inevitable other world Jamie versus Jim moment that I'm sure will happen now sure. that they're both there. That's fascinating to know because, again, I, I can't get – I have never had the opportunity anyway to get those old uh, other than the first one. I can – I'll – We'll, we'll talk offline. Yeah. I can get you stuff. And I mean, like I said, I think there might be a Panini collection of the early Kevin. There's some UK collections, yeah. yeah, that they don't publish here, but that are you could out get there. Probably from Amazon. I know people who like went to Forbidden Planet in London and like found them. It's like found that's them. Awesome. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's awesome. Because like, because I remember the Jamie. I remember the race car stuff from that ridiculous cross time caper anime mm-hmm. world where they went. Yeah, where everybody's God, I love the cross time caper. <laughs> and they had the weird knockoff dirty pair for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> God, God, the cross caper is so good. It's it's insane, is what it's it is. It's great to reread great. it too, because as a kid, I didn't get all the references. Oh, yeah. and now there are so many pop culture references throughout all of that Excalibur run. I will tell. Uh, let me let me tell you a here's a here's a Alan Davis sexy cross time caper uh, tidbit, which is not 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 about him really. We uh, did a story relatively recently uh, in Marvel Comics Presents, maybe mm-hmm. a year or two ago, and uh, Chris wrote that 
fits into the cross time caper. It kind of slips right. between chapters of that. And so because it was slipping between the chapters of that, uh, he was like, yeah, have Kitty wearing this costume that he she wore in this mm-hmm. uh, in this issue. But here's the thing. If you look at our Marrow Comics Presents issue, you will see it's not quite the same. It's not quite the same. Because that costume was too sexy for modern Marvel Comics to draw. <laughs> Today, I reread the Excalibur Inferno issue. And I love Inferno because Madeline Pryor is my all-time fave. Oh, sorry about I'm that. Deeply Well, we'll talk about that <laughs> offline. I have a pitch. We can talk. Um, I'm just saying that I love that character. I'm very attached to her from, from the ashes through Inferno. I think it's a beautiful story all told. I mean, what happens to her is very upsetting, mm-hmm. but it's done very well. But the Inferno Excalibur issues are hilarious. Yep. And there is that moment. I mean, my favorite thing is that Megan can't control her empathic power at that time. Right. She shows up and just starts vibing with the Inferno and immediately becomes evil. Like after two seconds, whereas oh, it took yeah, the X-Men a long time to be corrupted. Yeah, uh, and then she like enraptures Brian and she dresses him as her slave who she uses to attack Kitty in a thong and some leather strips with spikes on them. And Alan Davis has him on all fours, like presenting in front of her throne. Alan Davis draws some real sexy people that, let me just say, Kitty's birthday party with Satyr 9 posing as Courtney Ross, I don't think is an issue you could print today. (laughs) As a, as a young kid where the 16 year old girl is sucking icing (laughs) off of the evil interdimensional dictator woman's fingers as a, whatever I was 11 year old, 10 year old, 12 year old. I I definitely didn't see any, any problem with it. I, and not in a sexy way in a completely innocent way. Yeah, Um, of course. That's what I meant when I said they're like simultaneously so wholesome and so erotic, which is like this very specific Alan Davis. There's this world that they go to. It's like one of the kind of mystically mystic-y ones. And there's a there's a version of Saturnine there, I believe, as well, where all the women wear these like uh, frocks that are like, yeah, there's a front and there's a back and there's a couple of straps that connect them on the side. But you can see from the top to the bottom on the side of them. So they're clearly not wearing anything under it. And mm-hmm. Kitty ends up wearing something very similar to that. And we, they were like, no, you can't. She's, you can't. she's like, also, she's, she's 15. 15 at this point. Actually, she's I think 15. she's 14 at this point because it's before her birthday. Which happens at the end of the cross time. That's one of the first real big, like, Kitty is bisexual oh, no, yeah, moments. Sure. And, well, not the first, but the, one of the first that's really overt. When she looks at Saturnine? Yeah, I was looking at the sword is drawn earlier, and there's a great moment where the tech net summon the hologram of Saturnine. And Megan's like, ah, oh, that witch. I've never understood what Brian sees in her. And Kitty's like, wow, I do. <laughs> and I then when that. evil Saturnine, Saturnine, Nine, we'll explain this in the character files. We're going to get to that in just a minute. When she uh, is like seducing Kitty, Kitty is clearly very into that. Oh my god, this book is. I, I'm so, I'm just flipping through trades. It's who is this person seducing Kurt? That is again. This is like this book is crazy sexy. There's the so time. much sex in Excalibur. It's fun. <laughs> if you haven't read Excalibur, you should read it. It's fun and sexy and funny. Then she was 16 for a long time because then Claremont objected to her hooking up with Pete Wisdom in the Alice run because she wasn't 18 yet in Claremont's head. Right. So it was like, it's, you know, it's a tough, it's the, the, the timeline the time scale is hard. It's hard. They really are. They really, really, really are. And I, well, the, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, the answer is. <laughs> the answer is footage not found. What, what, the answer is the what? The answer is 
footage not found. Like, well, how old is this character? Someone asked me, like, how old is Polaris? It's like, roughly the same age as I said. That, yeah, I always tell people, and by people, I mean writers. I always tell the writers, don't put in numbers if you can help it. Right. Like about, don't put in age numbers. Don't put in time numbers of years and months. Yeah, Storm's origin can't have been the Suez crisis anymore. Like, right, we right, have to, right. You know, it's so you tough. used to be able to peg stuff on that. Well, and Krakoa is helpful because, I mean, it's helpful and unhelpful in the sense that my first thought when I saw, I love the original Hellions. I'm dying for a scene with them and Emma, by the way. She changed her whole life because they died. We need to see her talk to those kids. But are they now, like when I saw the data page where like Marie-Ange Colbert is talking about tarot cards, I texted Teeny immediately and screamed. But are those characters now the same age as Sam and Danny and all of them? Or no. are they like 10 years younger? Or are they... You know what? This you know this came up recently and we don't, again, we don't, we're not going to give a definitive because answer. Because you but... don't want to answer. I'm saying in my head, yes. they are the same age still as Sam oh, and Danny. See, and I feel like that's weird though. Same, it the, is weird, but well, it's, it's even... weirder if you mess up the character relationships by having them be a different generation. But, but, but hold on. You don't even need to go to the Hellions for that. You could stay in the New Mutants. What about Doug? Doug should be substantially but younger. Doug clearly comes back the same age as they all are now. <laughs> that makes no sense. But and that's what with, I'm saying. Same with Ileana. And Sink now. Well, Ileana, it's all magic anyway. But Sink is now back. Is he the same age as Monet or is he 16? He should be young. Whereas Monet now seems about roughly 23. Well, you know, so. I, I, she can't be. So, the, so I mean, the, the problem is, the, the well, problem. The, the anchor is Spider-Man. Well, I understand that that's Marvel's anchor. I think that with the X universe, because of the successive waves of students, you have to kind of allow for more wiggle room than that, because otherwise you get the Robbins problem where it's right. like this student was a student for two weeks. It was a correspondence course at Xavier's. Because I mean, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. I, well, and well, it, here, so here, and the the thing is, it only is a problem in quotes if you try to make uh, 60 years of comics into one story that works right. consistently. And guess what? I'm sorry. It just isn't. It won't. No, it never the solution will. is to say, Relax. don't worry about yes. it, which has become a catchphrase of mine on this podcast unintentionally because I just kept saying it and now people repeat it back to me. But, you know, don't worry about it. Is Sync the same age as Monet? Don't worry about it. I think yes. Does that make sense? Because it means he missed like six years of his life. Doesn't particularly make sense. Just go with it because the character relationships need to stay consistent. What mattered, I mean... I'm sorry to the people who are going to get upset, but this is a thing that I believe and I'm going to say it because I believe it. Continuity is there to serve the story, not to dictate. Not to rule it. I agree completely. And listen, I am a comic book fan at my heart. Before I read comics, I was actually, I can say this literally before I worked at Marvel Comics, I was literally spending a hundred dollars a week on comic books one hundred dollars per week and i was working at a comic shop so i was getting them at a discount which didn't mean i spent 66 dollars it meant i got you spent a hundred on more stuff (laughs) yes exactly so i love comics and i get it and i get that part of the appeal of reading a marvel comic and the the is the the history of it is the history and that you feel like you are gaining an expertise i love that the marvel universe has never had a crisis even after secret wars it reset to what we knew 
Me too. I love it. They didn't use that to reboot things. I mean, I've always found it hard to stay in at DC because I'm always worried that the characters and stories I care about will be erased. Same for me. Same for me. I got really into DC. I I was most I've mostly been a Marvel fan. I was always a Marvel X-Men person. And then I was furious about the destination, like absolutely furious. Me too. Because it ruined the X-Men for me. Because the minority subculture thing was my anchor. And they, so they became a statistical ruined, zero. Yeah. It's like, yeah. that's a lecture hall, not a minority. Yeah, it's that's, g- people. that's a great analogy. Yes. So I was furious and I literally dropped Marvel Comics and I started reading DC and I got really into DC and then the new 52 happened and I was like, betrayed again. So then I went back to Marvel same, and I've since back same. read a lot of the Destination Era stuff, but it's hard for me when people are like, what do you think about like Mercury and Rockslide? I'm like, I don't give a shit about any of those characters because they're from the dark age of the decimation that I didn't read. I mean, I was, so, I was definitely still reading it, but that's not a thing that I think I've read was it now. a great I've read choice. it now, but I didn't read it as it was coming out, so I'm not super attached to them. And I don't know. I just, I hated that whole era. And it's not because like, like Meg Carey's run is great. It's oh yeah, absolutely. That, it's not that the storytelling was bad. I just found that whole... But it treated them in a different way. They weren't a minority. They were an endangered species. Well, they were just superheroes again, which is not... They were an endangered species, which is not as compelling to me as someone who wants to read it and identify mm-hmm. in an escapist way with the minority metaphor that's exciting. And also, the X-Men are at their least interesting to me when they are just superheroes. Uh, see, now it's funny you say that because one of the problems I had with it was kind of almost the opposite, which was that I felt like they were not super heroic in that time period because all they cared about was the fact that their species was endangered, which... Well, sure, but I just mean that (laughs) without the mutant thing, they're just like Avengers who hang out together and people don't like them. Like, you don't... Without the cultural element, you don't have something bigger than just being people with powers in costumes. I mean, and that's and that's the thing. So, so I mean, I, I'm happy that we're we've moved past that. I am too. The X Office struggled to get past it a couple of times, and mm-hmm. I'm very happy that you've we've fully finally done, done it. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it feels and it feels really good. Right down to like the Crucible issue, which is one of the best issues of Hickman's X Men. It's a good one because the question is like, well, how do we fix those characters? We found a way. Everyone's going to be fine. We've got this. You know. I'm so thrilled with the status quo for the mutants right now, which since we're talking about a non-mutant this week, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let me pivot back to Brian. And I think now is probably a good time for the people who, and this is going to be most people listening to this, because let's be honest, if you're not you or me or a couple other people who randomly just love Excalibur beyond measure, a lot of Brian Braddock's history is going to be pretty obscure to the average Marvel fan. Mm-hmm. So now I think it's a good time just for the rest of our conversations that people have context to go into the Cerebro character file on Brian Braddock, formerly Captain Britain, now Captain Avalon. I will do my best. This is going to be a, a particularly tricky one, much like his sister, but I'm going to do my best. We're going to try here. And then we will come right back for more with Jordan White. X-Men, X-Men. Brian Braddock, known for many years as the superhero Captain Britain, is a character who has never quite hit the big time. Introduced in 1976 as the marquee character for the Marvel UK imprint, despite critical success in an 80s relaunch, his eponymous book failed to maintain an audience, leading to the creation of the X-Men spin-off book Excalibur. Over the years, his star has been dramatically eclipsed by that of his twin sister Betsy, originally a supporting character in his adventures, but eventually best known as the X-Men character Psylocke. Recently, he has ceded the title of Captain Britain to Betsy and assumed the new identity of Captain Avalon, defender of the Braddock family and their ancestral seat in the mystical chaos of Otherworld. 
Though he was introduced on the page in October 1976's Captain Britain Weekly No. 1 by writer Chris Claremont and artist Herb Trimp, Brian's actual creators are something of a mystery. Trimp speculated that he may have been designed by John Romita Sr., who was designing many Marvel characters at that time. Captain Britain's Adventures were the first original stories at Marvel UK, which up until that point had been doing solely reprints of the American stories. Physics student Brian Braddock, on break from university, takes a job as an assistant at Darkmoor Research Center, a classified nuclear facility. When the complex is attacked by the villain Joshua Strag, the Reaver, in an attempt to kidnap nuclear scientists, Brian tries to get help on his motorcycle, but is driven off the cliffs by the Reaver's henchmen. He survives the fall somehow and hears strange voices, finding a mysterious old man and a young woman who calls herself the Lady of the Northern Skies. Offered a choice between two objects embedded in stone, the Sword of Might and the Amulet of Right, Brian is given an opportunity to become a champion of the people, but is told the wrong choice will imperil his immortal soul. Declaring himself a scholar rather than a killer, Brian chooses the amulet, the correct decision, and is transformed into the mystical hero Captain Britain. Returning to his schooling in London, Brian, an orphan after his parents' death in an explosion sometime earlier, begins a crime-fighting career while finding time for his studies and a romance with his beautiful classmate Courtney Ross. The authorities at Scotland Yard don't respond well to Captain Britain, as Chief Inspector Di Thomas hates superheroes due to his wife's death as a bystander in an accident. Still, Brian perseveres, coming into conflict with first the female crime lord called the Vixen, and then the psychic villain Dr. Sin. Sin kidnaps Brian's twin sister Betsy and older brother Jamie, and Brian is forced to reveal his identity as Captain Britain to Jamie to save them. Claremont left the book after ten issues due to creative differences with editorial, in the middle of the Dr. Sin storyline, and was replaced by Gary Friedrich. Sales declined, and the book went to black and white with issue 24, before ending at issue 39. The character's feature moved to a backup feature in Marvel UK's black-and-white Spider-Man reprint book Super Spider-Man, which was retitled Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain. Sin is defeated when the Braddock's housekeeper, Emma Collins, deactivates a secret supercomputer at Braddock Manor. This computer, called Mastermind, is a creation of Brian's late father, Sir James Braddock, and it is revealed that the computer had murdered Brian's parents deliberately after achieving sentience. Brian then teams up with Captain America to prevent the computer from being used by the Red Skull to create a Fourth Reich in Britain. In ensuing adventures, Brian formally begins a relationship with Courtney Ross and passes a new test from his mysterious benefactors, now revealed by name as the Wizard Merlin and his daughter Roma. American readers first meet the character in Marvel Team-Up 65 and 66 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, where Brian travels to the U.S. for a study abroad program and rooms with Peter Parker. Though he never discovers Peter is Spider-Man, the two heroes team up for the first appearance of the supervillain Arcade, an assassin who uses a customized amusement park called Murder World to kill his victims, and has been hired to take out Brian. Captain Britain and Spider-Man rescue Brian's girlfriend Courtney Ross from Murder World. After Brian and Courtney return to England, Brian has an adventure with fellow British hero the Black Knight in the pages of Hulk comic, the Marvel UK black-and-white Hulk reprint book. In that story, Brian is killed by the dark forces of the Netherworld don't worry about it, and resurrected by Merlin. Along the way, he picks up a comic relief sidekick, an elf named Jackdaw, and the two are sent flying between dimensions. They land in the relaunch of Captain Britain by Dave Thorpe and Alan Davis, which takes place in the Marvel UK book Marvel Superheroes. This relaunch significantly overhauled the character and his world, and is immediately notable for the total redesign, at editor Paul Neary's request, of Captain Britain's costume into the version more familiar today. The captain also loses his signature weapon, the Star Scepter, with its powers now integrated into the costume itself. 
Thorpe's Captain Britain is a dystopian book depositing Brian and Jackdaw on a parallel Earth that will come to be known in later stories as Earth-238. The UK of this world is ruled by a fascist party, and all superheroes have been exterminated by the government. After stopping a robbery by the villain Mad Jim Jaspers and his crazy gang, Captain Britain is attacked by the avant-garde, minions of a mysterious woman named Saturnine, called Herwinus, who represents the Dimensional Development Court. Saturnine explains to Brian that Earth-238 is less evolved than it should be, and its stagnation is holding back the entire multiverse. She plans to jumpstart societal progress using an intellect-promoting evolutionary fluid, which Brian helps her successfully spread to the populace. Between issues, Dave Thorpe was pulled from the book and replaced by Alan Moore, who pivots the story in an even darker direction. Mad Jim Jaspers is revealed to be a reality-warping mutant of near-omnipotent power who unleashes chaos on the entire world. The government activates the Fury, a super-intelligent robot programmed to kill superheroes. The Fury swiftly murders Jackdaw and nearly kills Captain Britain, who is rescued by Jaspers. Jaspers explains to Brian that he was once a member of Parliament hiding his superhuman abilities, and when he was elected Prime Minister, he created the Fury to exterminate all other super-beings on Earth-238 and eliminate any competition. Chased into the graveyard of the superheroes by the Fury, Brian cries out to Merlin for aid, but is butchered by the merciless android. The story then moves to the new Marvel UK book, The Daredevils, where Alan Moore cuts to Merlin and Roma in Otherworld, and reveals Merlin is much less benevolent than presented in earlier stories. Merlin recounts Brian's history to Roma, and explains that he has manipulated Brian's entire life, including the murder of his parents, in an effort to create the perfect hero, one who is perfectly centered between science and magic. The battle with Mad Jim Jaspers on Earth-238 was meant to be a final test, and though Brian has failed it, he is still Merlin's best chance at stopping a crisis to come. He and Roma rebuild Brian nearly from scratch, altering his DNA to refine his powers and returning him to life on his own Earth. Brian travels to the site of Braddock Manor, which was destroyed by a bombing raid during his conflict with the Red Skull. He's startled to discover the mansion is intact, and learns that the evil supercomputer Mastermind had cast an illusion of destruction to protect itself. Brian successfully reprograms Mastermind to serve him, and re-establishes Braddock Manor as his base of operations. Contacted by his twin sister Betsy, whom he hasn't seen in years, Brian is startled first by her purple hair, and then by her revelation that she has developed telepathic powers and become an agent of Strike, the British equivalent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Brian's enemy Slaymaster has been hunting down and murdering the operatives of the Psy Division. Brian manages to apprehend him before he can kill Betsy. The Captain Britain Corps is revealed, in a retcon, to be a large organization safeguarding the boundaries of infinite realities. Discovering Saturnine has been stripped of her position as Omniversal Magistrix and is to stand trial for her failure on Earth-238, Brian begrudgingly agrees to serve as a character witness on her behalf. But even with the help of Brian, whom she calls the Captain Britain of Earth-616, it becomes clear Saturnine's trial is a farce. Her successor, Omniversal Magister Mandragon, first obliterates Earth-238 to halt the spread of Jim Jasper's reality cancer, and then sentences Saturnine to death. He is unaware that the Fury has escaped the destruction of Earth-238. Brian helps Saturnine escape with him back to Earth-616, where they meet Linda McQuillan, a.k.a. Captain UK, the only other survivor of Earth-238, where she was her world's representative of the Captain Britain Corps. She fled to Earth-616 when the Fury murdered her husband and all the other superheroes, and has been hiding out there ever since. But now the Jim Jaspers of 616 is achieving power, and she believes what happened to her world is about to happen to Brian's. Successfully elected Prime Minister, this version of Jim Jaspers proves as evil and mad as his counterpart on Earth-238, and warps reality into a dystopian nightmare. 
This Jaspers is even more powerful than the one from 238, and is the great threat Merlin has shaped Brian all his life to face. Ultimately, the Fury, arriving on 616, apparently destroys Jaspers, and is in turn destroyed by Captain UK, who has been galvanized back into action by tough love from Saturnine. Roma transports the group to Otherworld, where she reinstates Saturnine as Omniversal Magistrix, reveals Merlin has been killed, and introduces Brian to the rest of the Captain Britain Corps, from whom Merlin had previously kept him secluded. This leads into the ongoing Captain Britain series by Jamie Delano and Alan Davis, in which Brian meets Megan, a strange gremlin-like creature who comes to live with him at the manor and is briefly replaced by the evil Captain Britain of Earth-794. Brian is taken to that Earth by mistake, where he's seduced by the Maastricht's Opaldun Satyr 9, Saturnine's counterpart on this world, who is the evil Captain Britain's lover and rules Earth-794 as a vicious dictator. When he escapes back to 616, Brian discovers that his evil 794 counterpart had attempted to rape Betsy, who was forced to kill him in self-defense. Soon afterward, the supercomputer Mastermind reveals to Brian and Betsy that their father, Sir James Braddock, was actually a native of Otherworld himself. Brian's powers stem from this fey ancestry, with his Captain Britain costume merely acting as an amplifier for inborn magical potential. It's implied here that this is also the source of Betsy's telepathy, which will later be retconned into an X-gene mutation. Brian begins bonding with his houseguest Megan over being something other than human. When the British government insists on using Brian's resources to deal with the Warpies, children mutated by Jasper's warp, Brian is resistant, but Betsy insists they help the innocent children. Megan defends Brian from government agents and learns to master her shape-shifting power, transforming from a hideous creature into a beautiful woman. The government conspires to get rid of Brian, feeling Betsy will be a more tractable Captain Britain, and Brian soon learns that his brother Jamie has been kidnapped in Africa by the evil Dr. Crocodile. When Brian and Megan go to rescue him, Brian discovers Jamie is actually a heinous criminal himself, who has been trafficking human slaves to fund his ostentatious lifestyle. Disgusted, Brian leaves Jamie in captivity with Dr. Crocodile, disowning him. Totally disillusioned, Brian takes some time off and travels Europe, having adventures with Megan, with whom he's begun a romance. When they return to Braddock Manor, they discover that the government has convinced Betsy to replace him, and Brian angrily quits superheroics. He and Megan retire to a lighthouse on the coast, but a few months later, Brian experiences Betsy's trauma through their psychic bond. The supervillain Slaymaster, Brian's arch-nemesis, has beaten her nearly to death and slashed her eyes out. Brian arrives in time to save her life and kill Slaymaster, but it's too late to save her vision. Betsy retires to Switzerland, now blind and using her telepathy to compensate for the loss of her eyes. This is the final issue of Captain Britain, which was cancelled in 1986. Later that year, in October 1986's New Mutants Annual No. 2, Betsy is kidnapped from Switzerland by the alien despot Mojo. She's rescued and restored to sanity by Captain Britain and the New Mutants, but decides to remain at the Xavier Mansion to strengthen her powers and ensure she is never victimized again. She eventually joins the X-Men under the codename Psylocke, and two years later, in the event Fall of the Mutants, she's apparently killed in Dallas alongside the rest of the team. Back in England, believing his sister is dead, Brian loses himself in binge drinking and is verbally abusive to Megan. He regrets his behavior, but is deeply depressed, even after he and Megan form the new superhero team Excalibur with former X-Men Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Rachel Summers. In their new ongoing series, by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis, Excalibur attempts to carry on Xavier's dream in the absence of the X-Men, but Brian is less enthusiastic than the other members of the new group. He isn't a mutant, after all, and he's always been more of a loner. When the team confronts him about his drinking, he feels further alienated. He rekindles his connection with old flame Courtney Ross, whom he realizes, 
now that she's gone back to her natural platinum blonde hair color, which she dyed auburn back in college, is a dead ringer for Opaluna Saturnine. In truth, she is Saturnine's equivalent on Earth-616, though neither Courtney nor Brian is aware of this. Their old enemy Arcade kidnaps Courtney to get revenge on Brian, and while Courtney survives his traps once again, she's then murdered in her apartment by Opaloon Satyr 9 of Earth-794, who takes her place and seduces Brian into an affair. Brian's adventures with Excalibur, including the interdimensional cross-time caper, teach him to value his friendships and relationships more, and he rededicates himself to Megan, especially after he notices her closeness with Nightcrawler. He ultimately decides to quit drinking, understanding he's an alcoholic and is hurting the people around him. Shortly thereafter, he learns that the X-Men were not permanently killed in Dallas, and Betsy is alive. The Knights of Pendragon series happens here. Don't worry about it. Under Alan Davis as both writer and artist now, Excalibur's adventures continue. Mistakenly believing Kurt and Megan are having an affair, Brian is driven into a jealous rage and attacks Nightcrawler, breaking his teammate's leg. This is the final offense in a long list of times he has broken the Captain Britain Corps' rules, and he's brought to Otherworld to stand trial. Captain UK acts as his defense attorney, but he refuses to obey the court, and only the intervention of Saturnine saves him. While he's on Otherworld, it's revealed that throughout Excalibur's adventures, Brian has been under the influence of a bad luck curse placed on him by Roma, who had jinxed him to teach him humility and strengthen his bond with his teammates. Angry at this betrayal, Brian declares Excalibur to be free agents. Joining forces with Brian's brother Jamie, now completely insane and with his latent mutant power of reality warping, much like Jim Jasper's, awakened, the evil Satyr 9 of Earth-794 reveals what she had done to Courtney Ross, and then brainwashes Brian into her love slave. He breaks free from her control when she demands that he harm Megan, and the team secures their freedom, but are unable to stop Jamie and Satyr 9 from escaping. Not long after this incident, in Excalibur 61, Brian proposes marriage to Megan, who accepts. Their happiness is not to last, as Brian becomes lost in the time stream following a mission in their teammate Rachel Summers' alternate timeline. Under new writer Scott Lobdell, in Excalibur 75, Rachel manages to recover Brian by taking his place, forever lost in time herself. But the Brian who returns is very different. Traumatized by his experiences and mentally somewhat unstuck from the natural flow of time, he takes the new codename Britannic and adopts a new costume. Megan has grown more confident in his absence, and she's able to help Brian pick up the pieces even as he is unsure of who he really is. Brian, unable to make sense of all that he saw within the time stream, knows one thing to be true. He and Megan have an enduring love in all timelines, and are meant to be together. He eventually reintegrates his mind completely, and returns to the identity of Captain Britain. Under new writer Warren Ellis, Brian infiltrates the London branch of the Hellfire Club, to which the Braddocks have hereditary membership and helps bring down the evil mutant Mountjoy and the rogue sorceress Margali Sardish. Brian then loses his powers after a conflict with the dragons of the Crimson Dawn. Don't worry about it. And he takes a leave of absence from Excalibur to adjust. He returns in the final issues of Excalibur, 1998's 124 and 125, by writer Ben Robb, in which he and Megan marry. In a 2001 Excalibur miniseries, also by Ben Robb, Brian, Megan, Betsy, and the Black Knight travel to Otherworld to battle Roma, who has apparently gone insane. Brian's powers are restored by a hologram left behind by his father, and he discovers that what appears to be Roma is actually the supercomputer Mastermind, evil once more. The group defeats Mastermind, freeing Roma, who declares she is moving on from her post as Omniversal Guardian and appoints Brian to replace her. With Megan by his side, Brian takes the throne of Otherworld as its king. From here, the character mostly falls into retirement. 
In Chuck Austin's 2004 run on the Avengers, Brian and Megan call a new Captain Britain, Kelsey Lee, into service. They briefly visit Earth when Betsy is killed in battle, but then return to Otherworld, where they work alongside Roma and Saturnine to maintain reality until the cosmic event called House of M, brought on by the Scarlet Witch. Her tampering with reality has threatened the multiverse, and Jim Jaspers is first resurrected and then merged with the Fury. To contain this new reality cancer, Saturnine moves to destroy Earth-616, but Brian stops her. He and Megan join forces with Betsy, who got better, and Rachel Summers, who also got better, to stop the reality cancer, but Megan apparently sacrifices her life in the process. This leads into New Excalibur by Chris Claremont, where Brian, now a widower, becomes Captain Britain again, and honestly, you just don't need to worry about it. In the 2008 ongoing Captain Britain and MI-13 by writer Paul Cornell, Brian joins forces with the titular agency, Britain's Defense Against Supernatural Threats, to fight a Skrull invasion of the United Kingdom. Killed by a nuclear missile, he's resurrected once more by Merlin, who tells him all limitations on his powers have now been removed, but that his power level will depend entirely on his confidence in himself. After a conflict with Dracula, this book is super fun, but don't worry about it. Brian is happily reunited with Megan, who has fought her way out of a hell dimension. The characters are then largely retired again and return to Otherworld. Brian serves occasionally as a member of the Avengers, and in a storyline from Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force, Brian finds himself at war with a cosmic being called the Goat. His brother Jamie, restored to sanity, helps him in this fight, and he tries to draft Betsy into it as well, only to learn that the Goat is a possible future version of Jamie. Unwilling to kill his brother, Brian nevertheless does it when Betsy takes over his body with her telepathy. The twins are left estranged for a time, but eventually reconcile. Over the next few years, Brian and Megan open a school for young British superhumans called Braddock Academy. The Captain Britain Corps is completely destroyed in the 2015 company-wide event Secret Wars, leaving Brian as the only survivor. In 2018, Brian and Megan have a daughter, Margaret, called Maggie, who proves to be a mutant with superhuman intelligence even as a baby. They name their original Excalibur teammates, Kurt Wagner, Kitty Pride, and Rachel Summers, as Maggie's godparents. The 2019 X-Men soft reboot, Dawn of X, significantly revamps Brian once again. In the newest iteration of Excalibur, written by Teeny Howard, Betsy is forced to take his place as Captain Britain when he's mystically corrupted by Morgan Le Fay, who has seized control of Otherworld. Though Betsy eventually frees him from the sorceress's influence with the unexpected help of their resurrected brother Jamie, Brian feels unworthy to carry the mantle any longer. Jamie, meanwhile, takes their father's throne and becomes King of Avalon, which is the part of Otherworld readers have seen before. It turns out Otherworld is much, much bigger than we thought. By the time Brian feels able to resume his duties as Captain Britain, Betsy has become secure in the role and resents his assumption that she should give the title back to him. This leads into the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, in which Brian is manipulated by Saturnine, now not only Omniversal Magistrix, but also Omniversal Guardian, having replaced Merlin and Roma as supervisor of all reality. He soon proves to be manipulating Saturnine himself, pretending to be seduced by her in order to help Betsy steal the Starlight Sword, a weapon of great power that fully establishes her as Captain Britain. Drawing the Sword of Might, not in anger, but to protect his siblings, Brian becomes Captain Avalon, sworn protector of the House of Braddock. X-Men, X-Men! And we're back! With all of that under your belt now, dear listener, I need to come up with a name for listeners of this podcast. I don't have one yet, and I'm I call well, I call the straight men who listen to this podcast flat skin. <laughs> well, that's that's it's, me. it's affectionate. It's affectionate. Yes, you know, you are a flat skin guest. That's allowed on this podcast, and uh, I have no 
problem with that. It's just not my frame of reference. I mean, it depends on how how playful your pot your people are because you could call them gene jokes, but I feel like right. No, that's a little rough. <laughs> yeah, no. Someone told someone told me I should start calling fans of this podcast six sixteen. Just really dig in my heels. Uh, I think that would be a little confusing. Over on our Sailor Moon podcast, based on a line from the uh, the Deke dub of the mm-hmm. first season, there's a line where Darian, who is Tuxedo Mask in the Deke dub, right. is dismissing, or maybe I can't, you know what? I can't remember if it's the Deke dub or not. Anyway, the point is the line is he's 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 dissing uh, Serena or Usagi, whichever it is, and he, they say somebody has a crush on that person. Oh well, uh, I guess there's rubbish for every trash pile. And so, oh, I love that. And so we call our fans trash files. <laughs> I love that. I will come up with something. But yes, now that you, listener, are more versed in the history of Brian Braddock, I'd love to talk a bit about Brian Braddock's presence because obviously, in what has been a slightly controversial move that I'm quite fond of, I'm very fond of, but mm-hmm. was always going to provoke discussion. Betsy Braddock has become Captain Britain. Yeah. And Brian is no longer Captain Britain. And Betsy is no longer Psylocke. And it was a pretty big overhaul. And I think I've said this on Twitter. I've said this on this podcast several times. I've said this to Teeny. I've said this to anybody who'll listen. I think you guys spun gold out of an absolutely impossible situation with Betsy and Kanon. And I am thrilled with how it's wound up as a huge Betsy fan. Betsy was my favorite X-Man, but it was original flavor Betsy mm-hmm. from the 80s because mm-hmm. I was reading that stuff when I was a kid. And that's how I got into Captain Britain was that in Excalibur. And I wanted to get the backstory there. I'm thrilled she's back to how I think she should be. But I'm also enormously thrilled that Kanon gets to be her own character and gets to be Psylocke because the Psylocke who became popular to the wider world mm-hmm. is that body, is that design is that aesthetic yes and so letting the japanese woman whose body got hijacked not by betsy people get upset when i say that yes it's not betsy's fault spiral did it to both of them but it's a terrible thing that happened and i think that it's great to have her actually be a japanese woman who gets to be an x-man who gets to be psylocke because to so many asian readers that was a really important character and then they would find out her backstory and be like um i'm not sure about that one yeah but anyway so i love this because Betsy has always longed to be Captain Britain. Betsy has always resented that Brian was chosen to be Captain Britain. It recurs again and again through their storylines together. There's of course the storyline in the Davis Mm -hmm. Captain Britain, the big one where Brian retires and Betsy takes his place, which he's not happy about. And then he has to save her because she gets her eyes ripped out. Yeah. Very brutal. It's really, really actually viscerally violent to read. And I think like it's funny because funny, uh, it's, <laughs> it's unusual because while it's definitely the kind of thing that you could look at and go, oh, that's definitely a like a women in refrigerators type situation. But but it's got a different outcome than those usually have. Yeah. What's fascinating about it is because she ended up being the bigger character from it. Because Chris Claremont <laughs> liked her, she ended up becoming the way, way more important character because immediately followed that's the last storyline in captain britain the book is then canceled the only way they could think of to keep captain britain and megan alive was to throw them into an x-men book yep which is why excalibur exists at all and they brought in kitty and kurt who were two of the most popular Mm x-men to that book and then threw rachel in there 
And Betsy, meanwhile, after the cancellation of Captain Britain, only a couple months later, Claremont moves her over to the X-Men in Mutant right. Massacre, right. first in the New Mutants Annual, but then in Mutant Massacre. And she becomes a much more important character to the Marvel Universe than Brian, a much more popular character, especially once the body swap happens and she becomes this sexy ninja who was the number one Asian character at Marvel Ooh. for a long time. Ew. And who was sort of an icon of the 90s. You know, she's in all the video games. She was everywhere. Every flat scan nerd had a poster of Psylocke on their wall. Like, it was that kind of thing. And listen, I I understand. I do understand people who get upset at the fact that we're calling her Psylocke. That you're calling Canon Psylocke. Yes. Because they're going, well, that was Betsy's name first. And like, you're just doing that because of like, pop culture knows her that way. And the fact is, yeah, obviously that's a big influence of it. But- but that's not bad. Right. Merchandising-wise, you want Psylocke to be Psylocke, the Psylocke that people know. And it happens a ton. Like, like yes. here's a here's a here's a thing that I didn't realize, and maybe again, there's lots of X-Men fans who know more about the X-Men than I do. So I'm sorry for, for the fact that I'm about to say a thing that I'm sure a bunch of people are gonna go, how dare you not have known that? When I was reading the early X-Men stuff, uh, one of the things I would do, the the 60s stuff, is I would apply my modern day knowledge to it and go, oh, right. haha, like, look at that. Not not to not to be a jerk, but The for Juggernaut's fun. not a mutant. Why is Cerebro responding to the Juggernaut? Yes, stuff like that. And one of them was Magneto, very famously in those books, never takes his helmet off until many issues in. No. He never takes and his helmet off. And yet they can telepathically, can, you know, yeah. mind read him and stuff. And I was like, oh, his helmet. And then Tom Brevoort pointed out to me, that's from the movie. It is. That's not even from the comics. No, it's a hundred percent. Yeah, it's a hundred percent accepted in the comics now. Mm -hmm. It's uh, absolutely a thing. Magneto's helmet protects him from telepathy. But the movie invented that. Yeah. Same with the look of Cerebro in the movie. Like yeah, that just which became immediately a comic. became what Cerebro looks like. Yeah. Because it's the thing everybody knows. Yeah. But and it's a good thing. And the fact that everybody knows Psylocke and thinks of her this way because of other media, I think that's okay. Everybody thinks of Psylocke as a sexy Asian yeah. ninja character. And so if you're Marvel, it simply doesn't make sense to not have Psylocke be that character. However, continuing to have Betsy, who's a white woman, inhabit an Asian woman's body and be your number one Asian superheroine <laughs> is insane. Yes. Like you simply can't do that. So I think it was a really elegant solution. And I think that making her Captain Britain is a really good way to further her arc. Are there Brian fans who probably are not happy about that? Sure. Are there that many Brian fans though? I say this as a Brian fan. Yeah. He's not that popular character. He never has been. And if you're going to go back to that 1986 arc, which is a women in the fridge moment, the way you really fully tell that story through and make it not that is actually she is Captain Britain. And it's all a whole long story to get her there. And in the issue where she is transformed, Missy Hayes is the one who establishes that Conan even exists to have been swapped into initially. In the Claremont story, it's just plastic surgery that makes her look Asian, oh, which gosh. would have been even worse. <laughs> No disrespect to Chris Fairmont. Love him. That story's bad. But in that issue, when she's having her dream thing, Spiral and Mojo aren't actually there in the original story. Like, that's a retcon that they really were there. She's just dreaming about all of the people who've influenced her. And she has this conversation with Storm where she's like, I don't understand, Aurora, why Brian was chosen instead of me. Like, it's consumed her her whole life. But she loves him, so she doesn't begrudge him it. Mm -hmm. Except then in X-Force, in Uncanny X-Force, right. when he yeah, yep. does that whole plot where he pulls her to Otherworld and she takes over his mind to kill Jamie because he won't do it. Yep. And she's like, you made me do it. You always make me do it. Like, you have to be the good one. You make 
me do it and I'm sick of it. That's why I loved Excalibur 13. Yeah. I said to Teeny, I think as a Braddock's fan, I mean, Betsy is one of my absolute favorite characters. I thought that was the best story about them since the 80s, maybe. I mean, it that one issue, it got their dynamics so perfectly and Jamie's as them as a triumvirate. Mm-hmm. But the way that she early in Excalibur is so willing to give it back to him. Yes. But then once he assumes... Assumes, he's just like, anyway, thanks for doing that. Let's have it You're right, I'm not traumatized (laughs) anymore, so I'll have it back now. Because we just heard a prophecy, and they're talking about how there's one twin who's a noble hero, and one who's an evil shadow skulking in the darkness. And that one's got to be you, right? (laughs) So I'll have my amulet back now, and you can take this sword. And she's just like, you know what? Fuck you. Yep. And I love that, because it's very them, and it's very sibling to me yes it also is just it's her finally saying you know what no i deserve this the test is stupid i would have taken the sword but guess what sometimes you should take the sword like this test is bullshit all of it is bullshit i'm older than you she doesn't say that but she is so like if anyone's going to inherit their father's title (laughs) by like a tiny fraction by a couple seconds right (laughs) and jamie's older than both of them but no one's giving anything to jamie in fact the reason the twins exist this is a retcon but jamie was a dud because he wasn't born with any of the other world genes. Gotcha. Because it's a retcon that James Braddock Sr. was from Avalon. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's tricky because then there's stuff about how the Braddock family, though, is like an old family and their members, they've been in the Hellfire Club Hellfire for generations. Club, yep, and yep. So I believe the retcon then explained that is that the 616 James Braddock died and other world James Braddock replaced him. Hmm. But... Why would there be an other world equivalent of a 616 person? Other world exists outside of Earth. And then I'm like, well, maybe his name wasn't James Braddock until he took that guy's place. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it's complicated. Teeny can figure that out somewhere down the line. In addition, I mean, I think we've also been saying that the nature of other world has changed since Secret Wars. So I love also that the other world we previously knew is now just Avalon, which I think is... Really smart, because while I love Otherworld, you know, Captain Britain was a comic that was created for the UK market specifically. And the idea that the nexus of all realities that sits outside time and space and governs all creation is tied primordially to the British Isles (laughs) and based on the British Isles mythology is not ideal in the 21st century. So the idea that Avalon is one part of that nexus that is tied to the British Isles and is where all that fairy stuff comes from is really smart and allows you, I think, to do more Alan Moore type in terms of the Alan Moore Captain Britain mm-hmm. sci-fi stories like the Furies and, you know, all of that stuff fits better now that, that the whole of Otherworld isn't just D&D Arthurian legend. Yeah. So I guess, why don't you talk a little bit about the decision to make Betsy Captain Britain and all of that, and where you saw Brian fitting into things with that decision. We put Betsy back in her original body earlier. Jim Zub's Mystery and Madripoor, yeah. Yeah, we did, we did that like very specifically because we wanted to not have her in someone else's body anymore. Jim Zub told me in a comment, I was like, I just want to thank you for fixing Psylocke. I've been begging for someone to do this literally my entire life. I was like, was that a story? He was like, I suggested that because that story has always bothered me. <laughs> and they were very thrilled to oh yeah we were very that. happy to do yeah. it 
because we knew that it was a problem too. And I think, again, everybody had their reasons that they didn't want to do it. Well, it was inertia. The character became more popular right. in her new form. So it's like, do we want to junk this popular character? But an idea was floated to to keep her around anyway in a separate form. Now, at that time, we hadn't come up with the idea of who was going to be Psylocke and, and Captain Britain. Uh, there were other plans at that time. There were other plans that had, were since uh, abandoned. So I don't want to talk about those yet. Sure. Maybe someday. <laughs> But when Jonathan came on the books and we started planning out the the next uh, the round of things that would launch after House of X, and we hit upon the fact that Taney was going to be writing Excalibur, the idea, well, part of it was what makes an Excalibur book, like what what is right. why is it called Excalibur? Right. And we were like, well, Britain is involved in some way, even though it's a Krakoan book. Well, how? And magic is involved. And magic will be involved. Well, she she was pitching magic, and we she went. She was pitching magic. She told that story on the right. first episode of the podcast. Um. But I think it was Jonathan. I think it was Jonathan who suggested, "Well, we need a a mutant Captain Britain. Let's let's make Betsy Captain Britain, and that way we can just have that." Also, is like that's what we do with Betsy. I mean, it right. makes perfect sense, and that that solves both problems. And like I said, it's a natural continuation of her. Now, I am like you, a, a big fan of Brian, and so so then the question is, what do you do with Brian? Right, exactly. I don't I don't want him thrown by the wayside either. That said, I do know in my history of him that as we just discussed, there was a long period where people couldn't find a way to really make him work. He's been written out a ton. And yeah. he's, again, never been that popular a character, despite many attempts to, like, make him happen. It's yeah. just never quite happened. Yeah, people just put him as, like, and then they'll, they'll like, like, as much as I, I, I understand and appreciate it when people will, will kind of reach for uh, obscure characters and just kind of put them in a new role off to the side, where, like, like, like in the Avengers Academy where they're like, oh, there's a Braddock Academy. Right. Now. It like, was like, oh, that's cute. But yeah. I want Megan in a book. Right. I don't want Megan <laughs> just like dicking around with a baby teaching some kids I don't care about. I want Megan on an X-Men team. So we knew that her becoming Captain Britain would involve him and that then we'd have to do something with him. And well, again, obviously I can't talk about the future too much because we're not we're in the middle of it. Well, but he has taken on the new identity of Captain Avalon. He has a great new costume. Exactly. I don't know how the event will end, and you can't tell me, but I would posit that he's going to stick around in this new form, because otherwise I don't know why you would have given him one, right. unless it's a real bait and switch. Now, of course, Betsy got her Starlight Sword and then was shattered into a gazillion pieces. Yeah, that's one very sad. Later. That's so, very sad. But as I've said to people, that's very <laughs> Captain Britain. Captain Britain is constantly getting their shit wrecked, whoever they are. So I have a feeling that by Excalibur 20 or so, it's going to be the coolest Betsy has ever been. And if people are frustrated month to month, the fact is these stories are going to live on in trades for the rest yeah. of time. And you should be patient. Yeah, I mean, Ten, well, like, I mean, Ten of Swords is coming Ten out. Ten of Swords is going to read so good. In yeah, trades. it's coming out more than weekly right now. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. crazy. And also, this event was made for me, like, in a lab. Again, it's about... Opal Luna Saturnine causing problems and mm -hmm. everyone has to participate in an Excalibur story. Mm -hmm. Like the mere fact that Storm and Wolverine are like, here we are in an Excalibur story. What the hell do we do here? Is very funny to me because that's me explaining Excalibur to my friends whenever we were talking about <laughs> X-Men. They were like, what are you talking about? Like, and it's going to, listen, it's going to get crazy. And you're right. It's going to be a an amazing trade uh, or and i say trade or hardcover omnibus really yeah i want the omnibus i think it's going to be 700 something pages or something. i want all of pepe's concept art i want every permutation of pogger pog before we arrived at wait pogger till you pog. see i mean just wait till you see the last issue i want all the other world concept sketches the last issue is amazing 
Teeny can't tell me anything, obviously, because she's professional. Even though we right. work together, she's like, I can't. T-. But she has told me that like this doctor's gonna knock my fucking. The art off, is so. spectacular, and yeah, like we wait. just we just we asked so much of Pepe, and he delivered so He's well. Incredible. But yeah, so that's going to be, a, like, and honestly, like I said, it's seriously like 700 something pages. It's like a crazy yeah. number of pages, the, the omnibus, but it's going to be great. And yeah, no. So the fact that, I mean, I will say we, we knew about the idea that we would find a new role for Brian. And when we hit upon Captain Avalon, again, without saying how the story resolves, I think, I think we can just say this is a resolution of his identity to some extent. Like yes. the fact that he's able to take up the sword of might, not in anger, but in, in protection of his family. family. Exactly. It re- reinforces those bonds and it gives us a really awesome kingdom of Avalon. Yes. Like now you have Jamie as this hilarious, I mean, he has really been a break of character and it's funny. Hickman worked him into secret wars. It's clear that Hickman just loves Jamie Braddock for whatever reason, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I have my obscure faves, so I love whenever someone gets to really like bring their D-list favorite to the forefront. And Jamie has stolen the show every time he's popped up in Dodebex, which is so much fun. And yeah, now you have Brian defending his brother, who he kind of hates, but also really loves. <laughs> yeah. And the idea of Brian as the sword of the Braddocks is very appealing because since Excalibur ended, he has been a supporting character in Betsy's story mm-hmm. whenever he has turned up. Except for the brief MI-13 and for a couple Avengers stories that they threw him into in an attempt, again, to make him happen that has just never quite happened. Right. And I think that if you look at the arc of the twins, because Betsy became so much more important a character, because she was one of the Uncanny X-Men, which was the biggest book in the entire world, Mm -hmm. it is her story. And so him becoming her defender, just as much as he's Jamie's defender, is a really satisfying way for that story to go. And I can't wait to see how Megan fits into all of it. I'm hoping Megan will end up on Excalibur formally as a team member. That's my hope. Fingers crossed, because I love her. But I think it makes a lot of sense. And it takes him kind of full circle because his guilt in the original Captain Britain run was about how he had not loved his family enough. He had ignored his parents and then they died. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when he reconnects with betsy they haven't seen each other in years Years, yeah that's and they're twins that's crazy yeah he has always been sort of this introvert who you know they were this noble family except that their money was kind of gone so he was embarrassed of them because they weren't as she as he wanted them to be that's something that gets underlined in the alan moore stuff when merlin and roma reconstruct him after the oh yeah that's a crazy issue that was a good one yeah and he's like oh not quite aristocratic enough anymore but he's too proud to like be friends with common people so as opposed to betsy who is the song common people by paul (laughs) yes that's good like that's all she wants to do (laughs) that's a good one a friend of mine suggested that once i was like oh that's correct that's completely correct because Betsy throws herself wholeheartedly into whatever her exterior appearance is. I've talked about this before. She was a supermodel, so she's like, I'm a supermodel now. She was suddenly Japanese ninja, so she's like, well, I'm going to start wearing kimonos. <laughs> and putting up sumei paintings on my wall and practicing with a katana. And you're like, honey, this is weird. But she just, she goes all in. And so now she's like white again. And now she's Captain Britain. She's like, well, I'm a knight of Avalon. Here's my sword and shield. I'm gonna... She's very into... That And I think that what was nice about that Starlight Sword moment was that it was sort of her going, no, I'm asserting like me. I'm asserting who I am. 
And I can't wait until we get the story that I think Teeny is building toward. The story that I think Teeny and Zeb are both building toward, where eventually she and Kanon have to talk. <laughs> yes, I, I was also very happy... Because you're right. Again, Brian screwed up a lot of things in Excalibur, including, yes, cheating on Megan. Oh, no, they weren't married at the time, but now they're married. No, but now they are married. And uh, I mean, well, although he... So uh, actually, can we talk... Let's talk about the uncomfortable thing. Yeah. I, I think that Megan has grown to be a wonderful character who's rich. And I loved Megan the whole time. Yeah. But there is a weirdness to their relationship. Oh, it's very weird. <laughs> so there's a couple weird things to their relationship. One is that when they meet, she has a very childlike yeah mentality because she was locked in a she was essentially trailer. locked yeah. away in a trailer by her parents in a caravan for her entire life because she looked like a gremlin and so she wasn't allowed to talk to anyone and the bbc like raised her and he like brings her out and like lets her live in his house and then eventually she gets beautiful and then she and he's transforms like, into a hot person and he decides <laughs> let's to do this let's do this right yeah but what I will say is the Courtney storyline is really good because you're mad at him for cheating on Megan, but you also understand his perspective when he's drunk and talking to Kurt yeah. and saying, I feel like I'm Megan's whole world. Right. Well, because he is. Yes. And that she's completely devoted to me and I can't have a conversation with her. Yeah. Because she has no life experience. Like she doesn't know how to write. She doesn't know how to read and write. And I do think that we'll get to it when we get to the reader questions shortly, but while the Britannic storyline is not my favorite, I do think that taking Brian out of the equation for a while and forcing Megan to grow up a mm-hmm. bit without him made their relationship a lot more palatable when he came back. Yes. Because she grows a ton as a character in 90s Excalibur. So then by the time he comes back, in 75 and then they get married in the final issue Mm -hmm. you feel a lot less like she's a child yeah yeah so it feels less unequal also she manages to find her true form because the implication initially is that she becomes a hot blonde chick because that's what brian's into yeah when you see her true form and find out she is actually blonde you're like okay that's like less she's got those like weird like fairy eyes yeah i am hoping with the expansion of other world that we will dig into more definitively megan's origin because in my mind she is a character like betsy who is both a mutant and fae in some sense gotcha yeah yeah. and i think that the nuri storyline in excalibur sort of implies that but it's it's a weird one it is a weird one once we know that she didn't just take on that form because brian would like it that also is helpful there's just a lot of character work that i think they do to make it better and then when they kill her off in House of M, oh. which I was furious because was like, they brought back Megan and then they killed her. I was bummed. But then MI-13, I think, goes a really long way toward making her a heroic character independent of Brian and giving her her own B-plot throughout that book that then culminates in their reunion. And it feels really earned. And she has become this incredibly powerful woman. She finally feels that she deserves a superhero name when the demons name her Gloriana. And Mm -hmm. she says, you know what? I'll take it. I never thought I'd earned a code name, but I'll take it. They feel much more equal to me. But I agree that in the early storyline, there's some ickiness to it. And I think that Claremont and Davis lean into that a lot. I mean, I think that's why the Courtney plot happens to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a question of should these two be together or should she be with Kurt? Sure. She and Kurt are both too noble in their hearts to do it 
but they're clearly tempted because Kurt appreciates her for her gentle kindness and for her joie de vivre and the things about her that Brian finds a little exhausting. And Brian's really into Courtney. I mean, that's why Courtney has to die. Right. Because if she didn't, it wouldn't make sense that he doesn't go back to her, (laughs) essentially. Mm -hmm. And then with her gone, Megan can grow enough as a character that their relationship becomes something that makes sense. But I agree with you, essentially, I guess is what I'm saying. They're definitely one of those couples that, I mean, everybody has their their couples, everybody, all comics fans have their couples that they really, really, really don't want to break up. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely one for me. Now, now they have a kid, so it it makes it even more uh, fraught if that ever happens. But I think that's part of why they've never been able to really come back. Because I've said this on other episodes, I think that when you marry characters off, yeah they sort of retire a lot of the time because they can't do the romance plots. I edited X factor when it ended, when Peter David's X factor ended. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that people would always ask is when are we going to see Jamie and Layla again? And I would say to them, <sighs> I guess you don't want them to be happy. <laughs> right. Right. Because like when they come back, it won't be good. What happens when a character comes back after their wedding is their wife turns out to be a clone and she accidentally sells her soul to the dead. <laughs> That's what happens. You know, it's a problem. And I've said, I think it's a problem for North Star. I think it's a problem for a lot of characters who, once the romantic soap opera plots are foreclosed to them, don't have as much to do. And I think it only really works when characters are a pair Mm -hmm. and have been identified as a pair for most of their publication history. And I think that is true for Brian and Megan, yeah. Right, because she shows up very early in his solo run before Excalibur. And before most U.S. readers know her. Exactly. (laughs) No one had ever met Brian until Megan is already there as his girlfriend. So they are a pair where I think it works. I think Wiccan and Hulkling, I I just didn't like them getting married because they're so young. They're pretty young. But I, I think they are a pair that if they broke up, fans would riot. So it's one of those things where you can do it. With Rogue and Gambit, I think it works because at this point, those characters are a set. You can't really extricate them from each other, even though I was never a fan of their relationship in the 90s, but I like the way it's written now. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, I thought it made Rogue into a sad sack. And in the 80s stuff, she's so fun. So I was like, enough of this. But, you know, I I do think that... It's a toughie. I think it's tough. And I think that the baby element is tough. Like now that it helps that their baby is a super intelligent mutant. Yeah. Ha- listen, giving babies to superheroes, generally speaking, writes them out. I think is a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because then it's like, are you really going to go risk your life when you have a child? Like it's that. Right. Well, that's why that's I mean, again, I uh, that's why Spider-Man couldn't actually have a kid right then he has to retire absolutely that's why mary jane's kid was stillborn yeah i mean that's literally what happened in the 90s because it was like we can't we can't do that so yeah but but i but i'm glad that i'm glad that their relationship is together and i'm glad he didn't cheat on uh cheat on megan with with saturday as tempting as that would be but i loved that because if you've read the original excalibur Mm -hmm. you remember because it's an iconic scene that scene where saturnine seduces him Mm mm-hmm posing as Courtney and so the scene where he and Saturnine are like you're just like oh my god Brian you've come such a long and then he's like yes I have come such a long way you really thought I was going to do that again (laughs) for a lot of fans I think whose entry point for him is Betsy and whose entry point Mm -hmm. for Betsy is Ninja Betsy Mm -hmm. a lot of this has been a little confusing to which I say please go back and read this stuff it's so good and 
the beats are all there. I mean, it really does feel so consistent to me and like so many plot threads from 30 years ago, sometimes 40 years ago, coming to fruition in ways that are really lovely. I love that Saturnine's one weakness, especially now that she's omnipotent, her one weakness is that she needs to be sent to horny jail whenever she sees Brian Brad. Like she is so... Well, she used to be surrounded by them. <laughs> yes, she had a whole legion of them infinite brian's but the one she always wanted to bang was the one who she couldn't bang because he was like oh but i'm with megan and only the evil her got to bang him which isn't fair at all as i was uh rereading uh the, her first appearance the other day yeah. and prepped for this uh, i sent a uh screenshot to uh the xlac on the excalibur channel of the first time they ever met mm -hmm. and like two panels after they meet she is calling him muscle man <laughs> She is. She's like, you've disrupted all my plans, muscle man. It's pretty great. Avant-garde, to me, defeat this muscle man. It's like, why do you keep calling him that? She calls him it like three times. Yeah, yeah. And she just keeps looking at him behind her Veronica Lake bang and just sort of like adjusting like, hmm, um, how do I look right now? And she's in like a slinky little dress. Mm -hmm. Not her iconic dress that she became known She never in, changes but... anymore, yeah. <laughs> no, like, as the second she changed into that, she was like, this is the outfit I'm wearing for the rest of the multiverse. But no, I, I just, I love that. I think that the bond between those two characters is really fascinating. Like, one thing is, you know, people, when Betsy shattered, we're, we're recording uh, right after that issue, and this week was divisive. It seems very love or hate. I loved this week because I love Excalibur, and these were three issues that, felt very Excalibur to me. Me too. The specific complaint I saw a bunch was that like they don't react enough to Betsy's apparent death. And I was like, oh, you don't, if you think that, I mean, Ileana says, I think we're all in shock. We don't really understand what just happened. We don't really know what's going on. Like, is Betsy dead? We're not clear on it. But Brian threatening Saturnine. Yeah, he freaks out. And that's crazy. If you've ever read stuff with Brian and Saturnine, he, he just wouldn't do that. So I think that the depth of emotion there is very obvious, but that's because I'm extremely invested in Opal Luna Saturnine, who's a character not that many people are invested in, and I'm very invested in Brian, who's also a character not that many people are invested yeah, in. that's fair. I gasped. I was like, oh! And the solicit <laughs> for next week where she's threatening him with the Fury, I was like, this is the most, like, this is bananas. If you've read the Alan Moore Captain Britain, that's insane. And I'm excited to see where it goes. I haven't been this excited about the line in a really long time. And again, it's not to say that there weren't writers who did great stuff, but this this stuff excites me in a way that nothing's excited me since Morrison, frankly. That's that's great to hear. That's really great. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's an incredible, incredible era. What are some other favorite Brian stories of yours that we haven't touched on? Is there anything you really love? I mean, again, the big ones to me is as much as again as as much as the Jasper's Warp is good I to me it's the Davis and Delano collection which again is super hard to find but that's it gives you the origin of Megan where he meets her it gives you a, a great crazy gang story with the yeah I was telling Teeny I want Allison Double to come back but she should be a mutant right I mean this is the thing like the the strike telepaths aren't established yeah. and Betsy's not established as a mutant right. but like if Betsy's a mutant then those other characters should be mutants so have Allison Double show up. She was fun. You get this great story. What is it called? Sid's story where the guy who gets infected by the yeah. disease from the, the Fury is all yeah. warped. It's really good. Um, you get some great Gatecrasher. It could turn a dime from really lighthearted and funny. At the time, Marvel UK was also publishing Doctor Who comics. Yep. And it has a very similar tone. Yeah, that's To true. the point where 
fascination of the special executive and the tech net is called a Gallifreyan at one point. Wait, really? Yeah, I think so. Well, and also like Brigadier Stewart is a character. Right, right. And it's not the same Brigadier Stewart, but it's like, wink. Oh, and speaking of references, I did notice in Jasper's world, uh, they talk about how he killed Miracle Man. Yes. And you literally, when Linda McQuillan is remembering what happened, you see him kill Miracle Man and it is Miracle Man. That's great. That's ridiculous and great. <laughs> um, but then beyond that, like, again, just all of Excalibur. I love the cross-time caper. I really love the um, the arc early in Excalibur where, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but where the Nazi Earth Excalibur oh, yeah. turns up and they have to fight each other. Like, I mean, it's a really memorable storyline for Kitty who comes face to face with herself from the Nazi Earth who is an emaciated slave and it's pretty disturbing. But the Brian stuff is really great there too. If I had to recommend one Excalibur story, I'd go with... Excalibur 42 to 50, which is mm. when Alan Davis took over as writing and drawing it. It has a bunch of like little stories that add up to a big story and it culminates yeah. in issue 50, which is a really big moment for the series, but also for Captain Britain and his his saga, because it ties into Roma and Merlin in a big way and the stuff that they planned with the Captain Britain Corps and definitely yeah. has some Saturnine going on. It's a it's a great, crazy uh, arc that. I love. I can't wait to find out how Saturnine screwed Roma and Merlin and took their stuff. <laughs> I am sure that is an incredible story. And I also reread some of the Captain Britain stuff before this. And I was remembering there's that incredible scene where Saturnine gets her position as Omniversal Magistrix back and she makes Mandragon lick her shoes. <laughs> Mandragon? Mand- I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever his name is, she makes him lick her shoes or slippers and... She's like, and if you don't, I'll use these cell samples I gathered from Jim Jaspers' corpse to create a super monster, Jim Jaspers, and uh, do horrendous things to you. It cuts to Roman. She's like, I must keep an eye on that Saturnine. She's a crafty one. She's like, of course, I killed those cell samples before she could actually cultivate them, but I didn't tell her. (laughs) But it's one of those things where they clearly were keeping an eye on her. So at some point she was like, you know what? I think it's time for a promotion. And the only thing above me is you. So. Yeah, I mean, we we, we've leaned into using Secret Wars as a everything changed kind of uh, thing there. And, and I know that's sort of a cheat. Listen, I know that that's sort of a cheat, but at the same time, like I said, the Captain Britain as a concept was not, um, what's been retconned together from the beginning. Yeah. And it was, and it wasn't, again, it hadn't really a hundred percent worked for a while before that. So it's never fully worked outside of its own context. So if you want to make it something in a broader context, you have to broaden it. So we, we, we very much, uh, stuck to and told told other like there were other places and other editors who were going like oh what's going on with Captain Britain can we do this and I would go no no what we are sticking to is since Secret Wars there is no Captain Britain Corps right there's Brian and that's it and then we were able to introduce the other aspects like Saturnine and things like that more slowly over time so obviously mm-hmm. as you saw in, in 13 she's like well it's too bad there's not a core anymore yeah so I, I have theories about what will become of Betsy hmm. and the Captain Britain Corps after what just happened. So I don't know. I have thoughts, but I will not speculate because I'm not going to do that to you because that's not nice when you can't respond and I'm not going to like peer forward and look at your face <laughs> to see how you react to suggestions I make. Yeah, I would agree that that's a, that 42 to 50 is great. I love the cross time caper. It's, if you it's, want it's just a like sheer Excalibur 
excitement. Madness. Madness. It's absolutely crazy. But a, but a little uneven because yeah, of the it's art. it's not perfect all the way through, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. Then I would say outside of Classic Excalibur, which again, like, just read it, until Davis leaves, essentially. And there's still good stuff after sure. that, but like, you know... I think if you want something more contemporary, Captain Britain and MI-13 is a great book. Yeah, it's fun. It's only like 19 issues. so you know. Except he doesn't have the helmet. He doesn't have the helmet. I don't love that costume, but it's way better than the Britannic costume. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like we could do worse. So I'm going to jump now to reader questions. First, speaking of Britannic, Adam Farrar writes, is it fair that I still hold a grudge against Brian for swapping places with Rachel in Excalibur 75? It wasn't a fair trade, even if she did become Mother Ascani. And who wanted Britannic? Um, the answer is no, it's not fair. And, and the reason it's not fair is because, well, first of all, who are you to tell Rachel what to do? Second of all. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rachel made that decision, not, not yeah. Brian. Um, second of all, uh, I mean, it's a sensible decision in some ways because Brian, this is Brian's home. And as much as it has become Rachel's home, in a way, it isn't. It no. wasn't, Right. Yeah, And there was a very specific problem with Rachel. I mean, I love Rachel, but I think if you were looking at it as like an editor, the issue with Rachel is that Rachel had been the Phoenix at that point Mm -hmm. for a very long time Mm -hmm. and nothing bad had happened. It is a little weird now whenever the Phoenix shows up and possesses people and they turn super evil that no one consults Rachel who's around. I'm like, you were the Phoenix for like 10 years and it was fine. How'd you, uh, how'd you do that? She was such a cosmic being but it was fine yeah and i think that that became hard for people to write around it's sort of the same reason that my favorite avenger monica rambo got written out in the 90s because she was so powerful that people couldn't figure out how to write a story around her and on some level the answer is well then think harder on how to write your story you know sure with rachel i think that having the phoenix force just around was difficult story-wise Yep, And I think they decided they wanted to get rid of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would agree with that. And I think that her becoming Mother Iskani was a really strong end to her story if you were going to end it. I really did not like when Claremont brought her back. I can't remember the exact story where he brought her back. I know I was reading it. So, it well, first she comes back in like, a, there's a cable I know she became series a dinosaur. and like the time stream gets erased. Yeah, so it's uncanny in like that period with Claremont and Davis together mm-hmm. again here's what i think happened honestly and we'd have to ask chris Fairmont, but here's what i think happened i think that whedon had taken kitty and so kitty was not available and so claremont brought back rachel instead because in that book to me she doesn't feel like rachel she feels like kitty in terms mm-hmm. of her personality she seemed so young i mean that was also my complaint about whedon's kitty but Rachel just in that book, she's so she she seems even younger because she doesn't feel yeah. like she's the same age as Kitty and Excalibur. No, and she's so petulant about Scott and Emma's relationship, and like her becoming Marvel Girl didn't track for me because like her mother was the Phoenix. Her mother was, you know, like it's a different. I, although I vibe. listen, I, I wish she had a better name. I she just doesn't have a name that works yet. Well, that's the problem is that Rachel is just Rachel. She's a lot like Jean that way. I mean, because if she's not the Phoenix, then she can't be called Phoenix. Right. right. I mean, anything's possible. I mean, but... I wish that Gene was just called Phoenix and that we would stop having random people get the Phoenix. But I understand that that's not how it goes anymore. The, the whole thing with with the Phoenix. Well, uh, la- last thing on this question, because it's nothing to do with this question, is that you, you talked about everybody going evil when they uh, have Phoenix. And I I always was weirded out by that because I would say, wait, hang on, guys. The retcon says Gene did not go evil when she had the Phoenix. The Phoenix went evil when it tried to pretend to be Gene. Well. But Morrison unretconned that. Did he? 
Yes. I So Morrison establishes, here's the thing, it wasn't Gene's physical body, no. But in every respect that matters, it was Gene. It was Gene's personality. It was Gene's psyche. It thought it was Gene. Right. Thank God, right. because the fact, the idea that it isn't Gene is unbelievably stupid. Well, okay. It's here's one of the how, worst retcons Here's of all how time. I understand it. And, and this is important to talk about because you just talked about how, just talked about hours ago, talked about how much you love Madeline. Yeah. Now, here is my understanding of how it works. I know. I read your understanding in X-Men Monday, and I don't agree. Oh, okay. Well, I, well, I'm going to yeah. say it anyway. Yeah. But it's that there was, yes, there was Gene. The Phoenix took a piece of Gene's essence, put Gene at the bottom of the bay, took a piece of her essence, pretended to be, use that to be Gene. And then when the Phoenix died, Sinister recaptured that piece of Gene's essence and made Madeline. And then incorrect. No, okay, that's incorrect. Now tell me, yes. tell me what is wrong with that. So, at, well, and then what you're saying is at the end of Inferno, Jean reabsorbs that piece yes, of herself. Yes. So, so they all live incorrect. on in her. That's Jean's justification for it. <laughs> that is not actually what happened. So, what happens is Sinister has already got a sample of her DNA, and his eugenic project for centuries has been to crossbreed these two bloodlines. So he clones her, but the clone won't wake up. It doesn't work for whatever reason. He can't get, it's just this sort of brain-dead vegetable mm -hmm. in a tube. Then she dies on the moon, and the phoenix, as it dies, animates Madeline, because it's looking for Jean, and it finds this genetic duplicate and animates her body. But Madeline is her own person. Madeline isn't a piece of Jean in terms of her personality. First of all, her personality is completely different from Jean's, and also she, more importantly, sells her soul to Sim. Which means she has a soul to sell. Oh, I mean, maybe. Yes, sure. He thinks so. Sure. I mean, you know. No, but she clearly does because it actually corrupts her. Well, when that doesn't that mean that she doesn't have a soul after that? Well, I think it's more complicated than that. As Ileana shows us, I can go into a whole <laughs> treatise on true. Limbo That's if you want. That's also true. Ileana is complicated as well. Yeah, and I think that Madeline similarly has her soul corrupted when she sells it as Ileana sold hers to Belasco without understanding what she was doing. So the point is, the phoenix is, it's that energy that animates Madeline as a body. But the memories and stuff that she has that are Jean's memories, that's partly the phoenix's influence, but it's also that sinister programmed her with stuff. Okay. And then once she dies, Jean absorbs her memories and reclaims the piece of the phoenix that was inside her, that was partly Jean. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't make sense to say that the phoenix was just an aspect of Gene because in every way that counts, first of all, when it was being written, period. Well, sure. And yes. also just in terms of reading it, it's Gene. It's not like just one aspect of her personality. No, no, no. I it's didn't mean, I don't mean an aspect. No, no, no I know. I, mean, I know. Yeah. But what I'm saying is the idea that it's just a piece isn't what works for me. So basically the Phoenix energy animates Madeline, gives her some of Gene's memories, but Sinister then edits those memories. She has a memory of a plane crash right. where she, and all of that. And has a whole life. And here's the thing that I want to know. If on Krakoa we are to accept that memories and the backup and Cerebro are what constitute the human soul, which clearly... Oh, I don't think that's the case. I think it's more complicated than that. It doesn't... Well, so is Xavier copying people into Cerebro actually uploading their soul, though? Because otherwise, who's coming back? I think that it's, I think that it's more complicated than I think there is something about the process that taps into a soul. Yes. Ten of Swords has made it clear with other worlds interference with it that it does tap into their soul. Right. But how? If all that he can actually do is tap into their psyche. What I'm saying is 
that the psyche matters, right? Oh, yeah. And so I think that Madeline has a distinct psyche. Particularly, if you're doing... I I would love to skip directly from Inferno to the first arc of Hellions, because I don't particularly like any other story that's been told with Maddie between them. But if we're going additive rather than destructive, if we are going to decide that every story happens Mm -hmm. to some extent, insofar as they serve the story. Madeline has a whole other life after Inferno when she's Nate Gray's companion and Shaw's lover and Celine's student in X-Men. Although aren't those different characters? (sighs) It's the same Madeline. And this is the other thing. Nate Gray reconstitutes her from the psychic remnants of Madeline Pryor that exist on the astral plane, which means that Jean, though she absorbed Madeline's memories, did not absorb whatever inherent soul essence is Madeline. To the point where in the 12 crossover, Scott and Cable get pulled into the astral plane by Madeline and have a conversation with her. She tells Cable that she regrets trying to kill him, that she was crazy and that he was the best thing that ever happened to her and she's sorry. <laughs> and that she was like, I'm really sorry. Like, I am. Yeah, I really well, regret that. And, and Scott's like, well, if you feel that way, Madeline, it's like, shut up, Scott. I'm not talking to you right now. But it's like, it, <laughs> but he's like, if you feel that way, then come help us. And she's like, I can't, I'm a ghost. But the fact that she's a ghost, and it is 616 Madeline. It's not an alternate Madeline. Madeline then gets killed and replaced by an alternate Jean Grey in the final arc of X-Men that is terrible. But before that point, she is Madeline Pryor. Okay. So my point is... And then she comes back again, calling herself again, that Again, in person. an arc that I hate, in the sisterhood arc <laughs> that I hate. Because she, well, she raped Scott, and I find that disgusting. Sure. I just would never... But, also, I don't... but she's using the name of the character... The Red Queen, who was the evil Jean. Yeah, which is very confusing, especially now that Kitty's the Red Queen as Kate. Well, yeah. So it is confusing. But the point is, now, I would be thrilled with a retcon that makes that Red Queen ghost from the Sisterhood arc the Jean from that X-Man arc, if we really want to do that. But I think that that would mess with her resurrection again in the all-woman X-Men team book Mm -hmm. that -hmm. leads into Hellion. So I don't know. Point is, I have a lot of thoughts on this, as you can tell. <laughs> All right. So we could talk about it sometime. <laughs> let's let's go to the other questions. Yeah, let's, let's go, to go the back. I, yeah, but in Cable 44, I just want to finish sure. my thought. Oh, yeah. In Cable 44, when Scott is basically arguing that, like, Maddie was just a clone, which is what Gene says at the end of Inferno, which is why I hate Gene. I don't hate Gene, but I I really hated Gene for a long time, and this is part of why I identified so much with Emma and New X-Men, because of the way she speaks to and about Madeline in Inferno, wow. and she's like, everything you loved about her was just a piece of me that was stolen and turned into something bad. And everything you ever felt for her was just your longing for me. And I'm like, fuck you, Jean. Oh, wow. She was a real person, and you're gross. Did you just lose all the Jean fans from this podcast? <laughs> They've heard it already. They've heard it already. The Cyclops episode oh, okay. is a rough one okay. for Jean. But it's because both Jay Edden and I love Madeline and think Madeline is a real person. What I will say for Jean, and this is why Jean is not canceled for me forever, is in Cable 44, when Cyclops implies that that's the case, Jean's like, no, Scott, we need to talk to her. Like, she's a real person. And so I think, and I don't know if we'll ever find out, I think Jean voted in favor of Madeline at the Quiet Council. And I... Would love to see Zeb write that or, you know, to put my thoughts on that somewhere. I'm just saying. (laughs) So Scott Berg writes, I'm excited for the episode on Brian Braddock. My question is this. In the early run of Excalibur, up until the book was more tightly aligned with the rest of the X-Line around Fatal Attractions, Brian was always kind of a goofy, stubborn himbo. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to read the Marvel UK Captain Britain material yet, and I know I need to. 
but from my understanding, he was portrayed more seriously during that time. What caused the switch from a more straightforward heroic Brian to himbo Brian in the first place? And is there a way to bring that himbo personality to the character now that he's a father? Is it even appropriate in the Dawn of Exile for the serious himbo character traits to meld together into a fine line? So far, it feels like only Hellions is really allowed to be silly. Oh. First of all, I don't agree with yeah, that at all. I think that there's lots of silliness all over Dawn of Ex. I also think that if you're reading this right now, like Hembo Brian is all over Ten of Swords yeah. in a beautiful way. I also don't think that he's that seriously portrayed in the original UK well, Captain Britain. I think that the stories are more serious than the stories in Excalibur, but the, the stories are also always taking the piss out of him, always embarrassing him. I mean, he is like a scientist and stuff. and He's a scientist, but he's like, he's not stupid, but he is ditzy and he's like socially not graceful and that's always been the case and he just sort of thinks that because he's hot and rich and noble that it's going to be fine especially once he's like the chosen champion of the multiverse but every now and then betsy just has to be like brian what the fuck are you talking about yeah he's i mean he's definitely a character who 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 gets to like coast on on some his looks and his his some inborn things Yeah. yeah um but that said I, I do think there is a difference, though. He yeah, Because no, he's the he butt of the joke. In Excalibur, Excalibur, he's the butt of the joke the whole time. Because, again, he's a character who had failed. That's something that you have to remember. Like, the book was canceled. The character had failed. So And, and also, the, the other characters are so... I mean, you got Kurt. He's, like, the most charming guy. So Right. Like, you, they're all... He becomes a foil for all of them in fun ways. But you end up having a character who's routinely the butt of the joke because Kitty and Rachel and Kurt are the relatable characters. Megan is a fairy alien. So like, you're not supposed to relate to Megan. She's lovable, but she's not especially relatable. And then Brian is the character that you love to laugh at and you do have affection for him. But also, and and also he's also in some ways the straight man. Cause again, this is a, absolutely. This is a a goofy book in some ways. And he's the one who, he doesn't want to be in Goofy Adventures. Like, he no. wants to have serious adventures. Nightcrawler wants to swashbuckle, and Kitty wants to have all kinds of wacky adventures, and Rachel just wants to be a hot punk lesbian, and Megan wants it all to be like television, and Brian's like, I'm supposed to be a superhero. Right, right. What is going on here? But I think he is, but that's the thing. At his core, he is a good guy, and he is heroic, and he yeah. redeems himself when it's important. And Routinely. And I'm really excited to see him as a supporting character for Betsy, where I think he's always served well Mm -hmm. and if that's what it is going forward i think it's going to be really interesting but yeah i think it's a lot like warren where part of what's lovable about him is that sometimes he's just like hot and dumb and you know even though he is a brilliant scientist and warren is a brilliant businessman like they both have this thing about them and i think honestly not to get freudian with it but i think that it is notable i've said this before that betsy is attracted to warren and i think it's notable that brian is attracted to saturnine and courtney because i think that courtney saturnine are very similar to betsy in temperament and the way they view the world and that warren and brian are very similar and i think that much like we often find ourselves dating our parents betsy and brian find themselves dating each other which is why the Megan relationship doesn't make sense at first. And in the end, it's probably healthier for him not to date his sister. Yeah. Because Courtney is very much a Betsy. Like, yeah. she's called the Ice Queen. I mean, you know. But yeah, I I think that there is a lot of wonderful humor in Excalibur in particular. I mean, part of why I was drawn to the book before I knew Teeny on a personal level was that it felt like she was capturing some of that Davis laughter. 
And I think that Ten of Swords has had so much of that. So if you aren't caught up on Ten of Swords, I would say catch up on that. And I would say go back and read the, the UK stuff, the Captain Britain run, because while the stories are higher stakes and more serious a lot of the time, the character is still often played as the straight man to the zany adventure. Like the joke is that he wants to be this very serious superhero, but the shit that's happening around him is always completely bonkers. I mean, my favorite thing about, I had forgotten this, but the fact that his dumb elf sidekick, Jackdaw, who exists for like oh, yeah. the, for, the Dave Thorpe arc, that the first issue that Alan Moore has control of the book, he kills that character like, brutally. <laughs> Yeah, very like, that's brutal. That's gone. That's gone. That's gone. We're not doing it. It's like surprising how brutal it is. Yeah. Luke Reddick writes, Hi Cerebro, has Brian possibly being a latent mutant ever been a plot point given that his fraternal twin has the gene? Brian is a bit of a blind spot in my comics trivia knowledge, so I don't know if it's ever come up. If not, are there other siblings where the mutant gene doesn't manifest in all of them? I know some of the Guthries don't have powers yet, but that could just be them being too young. And then with Sarah Gray, Claremont intended for her to be a mutant, but it never made it onto the page, making her complicated. But otherwise, it seems like most siblings in a bloodline exhibit mutant powers together, and often complementary ones. So if Brian isn't a mutant, does that make him and Betsy a fairly unique case? And what I would say to that is there are a few other... I mean, there are cases of children who are not mutants yeah. being born, like Graydon Creed or uh, Quicksilver's daughter Luna... Well, but well, siblings, quick well, and that's, <laughs> we can't talk about this because I'm really, I'm still furious about that retcon and I need you guys to let's, fix let's it. Let's keep, let's go past it. Let's fix go past it. it. Fix it. Um, I have, I have said on this podcast, I'm not doing episodes with Wanda or Pietro until Marvel fixes them. Because it doesn't make sense now. Really, on the, go, no, I'm not going to get into them. I'm just saying, when it says, when it says in your books, House of M, the House of M, or Polaris refers to House of M, and the House of M is just Magneto and his daughter Lorna, who he doesn't really know very well. It's awkward. I'm just saying. Anyway. That's all he's got. He's clinging to it. There's also Magneto's daughter, Anya, oh. uh, who died too young for us to know if she was mutant or not, but it would be yeah. kind of wild if she came back on Krakoa. But with siblings, Prodigy, I believe, has a sister who's not a mutant. And yes, there are Guthries who aren't. Elizabeth Guthrie is a mutant in Age of Apocalypse, though, so presumably mm. she just hasn't been activated on 616. And Sarah Gray, as you know, is a complicated one because... Claremont had her sort of on the back burner always. And when they insisted they were going to do X Factor, he was like, well, I have a sister. Right. What if we did this? And she was supposed to have Sage's jumpstart power. That's where he first came up with that, was that that was going to be Sarah's thing. And that's why she had never clearly been a mutant, because the power isn't something she, it's something she does to other people. Right. Much like Moira, honestly. It's a retcon that's easy to slip in there. Mm -hmm. Wolverine has that retcon half-brother that no one ever wants to acknowledge again, who's not a mutant. Oh, yeah, dog. He, he showed up again. He traveled through time with a time bat. <sighs> yeah, I guess. Uh, and Valeria Richards, Franklin's sister, is not a mutant. Yes, that is true. So those are the ones I can think of, but it is uncommon. I would say that the reason for this, though, is that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Betsy being a mutant is a retcon. It's something that Claremont establishes when he moves her to New Mutants Annual and then to the X-Men. Before that, in the Captain Britain books, she's just a psychic and the source of her power is never explained. So I think that it's more a case of Betsy being a mutant, being something that was retroactively applied to that character. But like then, of course, it turns out Jamie's also a mutant in Excalibur. So it does become a little strange. And I think, especially when they're twins, I mean, that does seem odd. But I think 
that you can argue, since they are half fairy, that is a thing, that perhaps the other world genes overrode it in his case or whatever. I mean, there are ways you could do it. Or even, um, you know, I mean, also, like, as you pointed out, uh, the number of times that he has died and been rebuilt from the bottom up. Yeah, Rome. I mean, I was just rereading that issue where it's an entire issue in the Captain Britain run mm-hmm. where it's just Merlin and Roma rebuilding him from Adams, essentially. And Roma makes adjustments to his DNA. Yep. Like, they say it on the page. And the issue is just Merlin catching everyone who didn't read the 70s Captain Britain book up on Brian's origin yep. story while they're, like rebuilding him and it's also the issue where more sort of retcons that merlin is evil as shit (laughs) yes yes because he's like and all of this was something i set up so that he would be tested through this crucible of tragedy killed his parents too right or no am i right mastermind the computer mastermind with not to be confused with jason wingard or martinique jason (laughs) or regan wingard killed his parents but but was he not involved in that i don't know uh, he's in he's the implication is that a basically everything that ever happened to brian yeah. is stuff merlin set in motion to create the perfect captain britain yeah. among the whole core because the jim jaspers of 616 is the most dangerous potential being in the multiverse and they needed a captain britain who could stop him so that what happened on 238 wouldn't spread as a reality cancer to all realities so yeah. I mean, again, Captain Britain is a whole series of retcons on top of itself. It's much like Madeline that way, or like certain other characters, where the initial conception of the character is completely different from the version that oh, yeah. we all know now. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, like, Madeline wasn't a clone of Jean Grey. Madeline wasn't any of that. It's all stuff that was added to the character. And Claremont, and Alan Moore is also very good at that in this run, but Claremont is was particularly good... I mean, I think that Tessa is another really good example where he took a character. There's only one thing that doesn't work is in graphic novel number four, the first appearance of the New Mutants. Mm -hmm. There's a narration box that says Xavier doesn't trust Tessa (laughs) because he knows that she's the Hellfire Club's creature or something like that. I was rereading that for the Danny Moonstar episode. I was like, oh, that doesn't work. But that's a very small detail. And, you know, the idea that Tessa was always his spy in the club works because Claremont had always used Tessa as this sort of weird character whose allegiances were a little unclear and she was loyal to Shaw but wasn't really loyal to the rest of the club and like what's going on there so there was room to retcon something together and I think that Captain Britain is one where because the origin story was so vague in the 70s you could just kind of plop something on top of it and make it work and they just kind of successively did that again and again so yeah I think that he's not a mutant because Betsy wasn't a mutant but now she is So it's a little bit of a backwards thing where we have to figure that out. I think that given that quite intelligently, Marvel has never 100% explained how the mutant gene works. We know that Moira mapped it. So like they found it because Kavita Rao cured it. So like it can be found, but we don't know exactly how it's been inconsistently explained. I mean, people have been able to tell if you're a mutant with a sensor since the 60s. But, right. but what does that mean? And, and we well, don't want to get that, into it. Except that that sensor reacted to Juggernaut, Krakoa, and the Maximoff twins. So at this point, we've got to question the 60s Cerebro. Well, I think Krakoa is a mutant. 
But it's not a human mutant. Well, we'll see what happens. Okay. You never know. I, I, I mean, don't well, you'll know. Have, you, you have to completely throw out the, uh, yeah, you would. the giant size X-Men origin with the nuclear test. Although, we've already basically thrown yeah, that out. Yeah, we kind of already have. So, <laughs> well, it's dumb. Well, is it the promise? Because that's the, that's the point right before Claremont takes over the book. And it's not until Claremont takes over the book that mutation is genetic right. at all. Right. It was always before it was that, always just radiation. nuclear radiation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And then Claremont comes in, introduces Moira, who explains that it's genetic introduces Celine, who is, makes it clear that atomic testing did not create mutants since she's 17 bazillion years old and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, but he's the one who does that, which is why the minority metaphor takes in there. Anyway, I agree that it's a little strange and interesting and it would be fun to see if Brian has some kind of latent thing, but I think that at this point he's been confirmed not to be a mutant several times. So he doesn't have the activated gene and because they're fraternal twins, you can explain it. Whereas like once Madeline was a clone, she had to have an X gene. You know what I mean? Like things like that. So although we've seen that clones can have weird X gene variations, I still want to know what the hell Gabby is doing on Krakoa if Maddie's not allowed. Seems a little hypocritical to me of the Quiet Council. I think perhaps that's the point. Well, I don't think they ever said she wasn't allowed on Krakoa. Uh, Well, that they won't resurrect her because she's a clone. So what happens if little Gabby gets shot in the face? That's a great question. I'd love to find out. Well, she has a healing factor. But okay, she got I guess, shot really right. bad. But yeah. what about the cuckoos? Did they not count? Because That's a they great question. Because like, the cuckoos, I guess, are technically like Emma's daughters, yeah. but they're clones of each other. Because they were all cloned from the same cell. That's that's fair. That's fair. That's a good question. So it's just like, but, and so the distinction there is they each are individual people with their own memories, much like Madeline and Jude. Just to go back It's funny you say that because I would say the distinction there is that they act as one entity most of the time. Oh, interesting. (laughs) But that doesn't work for Gabby and Laura. No, it does not. Laura and Wolverine, she was retconned into a daughter a long time ago. They didn't bring back, uh, they didn't bring back Evan. Well, Evan's not dead, is he? Oh, yeah, he died. He died a couple of years ago in uh, Age of X-Men. Oh, and they haven't brought back Strife either. That would be fun. Strife has a double check against him, though, because he is both not, uh, he's both a clone and also not of this era. Right, he's from the future. Yeah, so I don't know that that would be really... Right, no, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, right, no. So, James Campbell writes, Hi, Connor and Guest. My question is more of a general question that I think may be helpful for people like me who are only getting into X-Men with the Hickman era and haven't read any of the comics for decades before that, if not longer. I stopped in the mid-90s, personally. In light of the Moira revelation, are we to understand that everything that has happened in the 616, and this person wrote out 616 in letters, I just want to shout that out. In the 616 timeline to date, all still happened? Have any portions been thrown out? Do we not know the answer to that? Are alternate timelines like Age of Apocalypse the lives of a different Moira? I guess most pressingly of all, should we be assuming that since Moira talked to Xavier in college about her grand scheme, that if everything that's happened in 616 still happened, everything, including Onslaught, was just play acting? I think this is the biggest mental hurdle that I'm having trouble with, and any insight would be a big help. Yep. I'm assuming this is true for others as well, even if that advice is just, don't worry about it. As I said, that's becoming a catchphrase. <laughs> Thank you for all your time, energy, and insight into the X-Men, helping to reunite my little queer heart with one of my greatest childhood loves, James. So I'll let you take it away in a second. I, yeah, I've got some answers. But that, yeah. my read on that before you actually give an answer is that we don't know that it's something that's going to be explored. We know that there's a Moira anthology type book coming eventually that might fill some of this in. Age of Apocalypse is not the life of a different Moira. We know all 10 lives of Moira at this point. Though the question of what's up with Moira's in other realities, like what's up with Ultimate Moira, what's up with this, is a valid question. I think it seems that only 616 Moira has this ability that she's maybe an anomaly the way that Rachel Summers is an anomaly in the multiverse. 
So that would explain that, I guess. But the big question is, and this is a question I also have, if Xavier has always known that his dream does not work, then was he bullshitting the entire time we've known him? So, I, yeah, I, I can answer lots of different parts of this. Uh, so first, easy part of the question. Yes, everything still happened. Nothing right. was erased by it. Uh, all the comics that came out before House of X are the 10th life are her 10th life. Uh, and and yes, you you can you can point to specific scenes where you go, what, what about this? That doesn't quite work, panel. but that's comics. Yes, you have to yes, allow that. Yes. It's the Morrisonian approach, as Tina right. and I called it in the first episode. Everything is canon, but nothing is canon. Like you, It has to serve the story. But here's what I think. You mentioned it being a hurdle, and I, and I, I understand why you feel that way. But I think that's because uh, there is a there's a key to it that I think people sometimes have missed, which is that this isn't Groundhog Day, right? This isn't Moira has lived this one day a thousand times, so she knows what happens in every second. She's lived her entire lifetime a total of ten times. Mm-hmm. She starts doing things different the minute she's born. So they're not going to be the same ever. Right. And it is 616 being rewritten, right? It is. It is. It is reality. The timeline is eradicated and starts over. Yes. yes. So as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure 20 years from now, someone will come along and wreck on it. But as far as I'm concerned, those those nine lives do not exist still. Do not exist anymore. They've been destroyed. Right. right. So, um, or at least that's how I interpret it. Yeah. So her... Being able to say to Charles and show to Charles even, here's what happened in my nine lives so far, doesn't mean that they know every single thing that will happen for the rest of their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. It means that they know nine times where entire- This is what happened nine times. Previous. Yes, that decades of stuff happened differently. So, and again, as soon as she gets there, she starts doing things differently. So it's going to be different. And yeah, we showed places where it's like, oh, that thing happened both times. But we didn't go into such rich detail. The lost decade is my favorite. <laughs> I laughed. But even oh, there, God. we didn't go into such detail that you know. No, you just see the Phoenix Five. Right. So that happened in that life too, but you don't know anything else about but, it. But yeah, it could be lots of things that led to it differently. You don't know. And maybe someday right. we'll explore it. So in regard specifically to the dream, the answer is he does believe in his dream. And that is part of the struggle that they experience together was is him being like but i believe in this thing and her going it's not gonna work it doesn't work and her being a more hardline separatist than magneto or emma have ever been i mean she's like we have to separate because they're gonna kill us no matter what but he is still him i think a lot of people aren't sure if he's really him that's the question you see all the time i think he is he is really him to me it tracks but like the question that keeps me raised is like since krakoa is so much more in line with the way magneto or the way that emma have argued in the past politically and less aligned with Xavier's sort of assimilationist, let's cohabitate with humans and be peaceful thing. It feels abrupt to people. And I think the question that they have now is like, since Moira told him this before X-Men 1, has he always been lying? No. And I guess what you're saying is that no, he decided to try anyway, but he and Moira have been working on a contingency plan in the background. And in addition, it's not like it's not like the start of her 10th life was her going, all right, here's what we're going to do. It, the goal is Krakoa. Here's how we're going to achieve it. Oh well, that's not that's not necessarily clear to no. I know. Yet, so that's I know. Good to know. But I think that all of those, like I mean, you know, onslaught. Um, 
I think uh, I think Jonathan even makes a, a clever reference to Onslaught in in some of Moira's journals in there of of how yeah. that happened, and that's not something that they planned for. And it's just like have Xavier and Magneto always working together. Right. And what I would say is go back to House of X because I believe the scene where they recruit Magneto happens like after Uncanny One Fifty or so. Yeah, I believe. You look so. at like where that would happen in the timeline. I believe so. Magneto so. in the sixties and seventies is not working with them, mm-hmm. and so. That part of the story still tracks, and it makes sense that around that time is when Magneto starts having doubts about his whole deal, and it leads to Claremont's, like, this hard-right Zionist Menachem Begin-type character becomes a more moderate guy and takes over Xavier's and, like, etc. And also, I mean, you know, we talk about there being retcons. I think there are a lot of retcons that have happened with Professor Xavier, and Mm -hmm. to me, this is not... The most no, extreme. No, I mean, this is a lot less offensive <laughs> to me than Deadly Genesis yeah. in terms of him and Moira. I think the Moira Recon is absolutely genius because I've always liked Moira McTaggart. I mean, if there's some Moira fan out there who feels like it's ruined Moira's character, it's like, well, she's. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are, but she's been dead for 20 years. So, like, it's either she's in the ground or we're going to change it up. And I think that this is a great change up. I also think it resolves the problem of Moira, which is that she was always in the metaphor the nice lady outside the minority group who was the savior of the minority group. And to say that all along she secretly was one who was sort of full stealth undercover working to advance the group is to me a lot more palatable in terms of who she is. There's one thing that people have pointed out that I think is fair, which is the implication that she sought out Joe McTaggart for the purposes of creating Proteus to enable resurrection or that she and Xavier specifically Mm -hmm. tried to have Omega level children Mm -hmm. with people. And that that's how Gabby Haller and Joe McTaggart came in because of the implication in the seventies that Joe McTaggart raped Moira. I understand the stuff there, but the way I read it, she started dating him and married him because of his genetic profile Mm -hmm. and all the abuse that he heaped on her after that, that led to her leaving him. Oh yeah, I, she didn't it's like, want she that. She didn't know that yeah. was going to happen because, because like that's said, th- that's what all of it is. Groundhog Day. Th- this isn't. It's like she had never met him before. Right. There's no. They didn't. They didn't have a script they don't for have her a, tenth flight. Script. Right. Exactly. Destiny didn't give her that. She just said some scary shit. Everything we've seen them do is them trying things, uh, and they didn't all know that a zillion people were going to die in Genosha. They didn't know that. That was Magneto trying something again, and and it. Did Genosha not happen in one of her... Pre- I thought it did. Not Genosha specifically. No, because Far Away, right. was the like, which is a new one. Like right? It's, it's okay, a thing yeah. that Magneto has tried before and that Xavier even tried. Yeah. And they didn't account for Cassandra Nova, which I think is interesting because maybe that's only happened in this life. Maybe the Cassandra Nova thing is, again, anomalous. Maybe that just didn't happen previously. There's lots of things where we don't know because there are so many factors. Like, yes. if we go back to like maybe in Moira's other lives, this cluster of cells that became Cassandra Nova died in that sewer. Like there are so many factors that we just don't know because it's a butterfly. Right. Everything that happens changes everything else. I think a lot of people are going to, I mean, not to like toot my own horn because it's not about me. I think a lot of people are going to listen to this in the hopes of getting little tidbits of canon or whatever from you as the senior editor And I think that that is important to clarify for a lot of people, that Xavier's dream is not a lie. Krakoa is a compromise between Xavier, Magneto, Emma, Moira, and other people who have their own political viewpoints, but he hasn't been faking it. Yeah. Yeah, he has just been trying his best the whole time. And 
Just the same way he always we've always seen that he's been doing. It's just that he also has this other knowledge that in a vacuum he's going to fail. And since everything he's tried thus far hasn't worked, I can buy that he's sort of lost some of his faith in the dream. That he's like, all right, she's right, it won't work. Because that no more scene in House of X sort of implies he's like, you know what? No, no more of this. I mean, you could even say uh, shortly after Giant's Eyes when he brings Moira in, right? Yeah. Every Specifically, you can say everything that's happened to the X-Men since that time at least yeah. is not the way it happened uh, in any of the previous lives because she is doing things differently. Yeah, because she didn't marry him this time and she posed as the housekeeper and all kinds of stuff. And they stayed pretty separate. I mean, that's the thing. Because the, the only other life that's similar to this one, the one that we mentioned, I forget which number it is, but it's the one where she marries him mm-hmm. and they do the whole X-Men thing together. Right. But it, but even that, like, again, but we even don't see that, that much. We just see snippets. Well, we see the different generations of X-Men mm-hmm. and they are the same yes. up through the lost decade. But then everybody gets blown up to shit like in Days of Future Past. Yep. And she was his wife. And she was there the whole time. It's very different from her being on Muir Island, them being these exes who are complicated, but her doing her own thing and dating Banshee instead. Like, they, <laughs> they're doing different stuff. Poor Banshee, by the way. I love that she hated him the first time she met him, too. Uh, Xavier. Yeah, I do. I do, too. I love that the first time she met Xavier. She's like, what a fucking prick. Because guess what? Charles Xavier is a massive prick. So I think that that's a great tidbit to get, because I do think that while there are certain things that don't fit, like I said, like he must have been talking that golem about the legacy virus. Overall, I do think if we are meant to understand, Xavier wasn't lying to them all. No. He was hoping Moira maybe wasn't going to be right this time. But as things have become more dire, they've been setting up potential fail-safes or whatever, and now they've decided Krakoa is the way forward, I think is... That's probably easier to swallow for people than the idea that Xavier and Magneto and Moira have all been doing a pantomime. Yeah, no, definitely not. Definitely, you know, definitely not. Because because again, it's it's decades of their lives that you just can't. They couldn't even think about living that way. All right, so that answers that. I would love to ask if you have any final thoughts on Brian Braddock before we wrap up you know again like we've said he's been in so many great stories but not not as many as some of the characters out there so you can really Mm -hmm. other than that some of them are hard to find i recommend highly trying to track them down and seeing what you can track down all of it because there isn't that much of it yeah so just like Um, dig in and we're gonna try to do our best to tell good stories about him in the future uh you know i can't say exactly how much but fingers crossed yeah the more the merrier (laughs) well I'm excited because I love Excalibur and I love these characters and I love everything that's going on right now. So I'm really jazzed to see where everything goes. Thank you so much for being my guest. This was really fun. I had a great time chatting with you and I think that a lot of people are going to enjoy this episode, whether or not they like Brian, because we covered a lot of stuff. That's true. Uh, And that's how this show always goes. It ends up being very tangential. Like I said, the Warren episode turned into like at least 30 minutes of it are just me talking about why Candy Southern should come back now that the phalanx are a threat to Moira <laughs> and that, like, I have a whole pitch for, like, I'm like, I, I, I you know, here's what Candy Southern... I'm just saying, we go tangential because it's the X-Men. The X-Men is so bad. Yes, there's a you lot. you can't really... If you're having a natural conversation that you're not scripting, it's hard to really focus in. In any case, thank you for taking this meandering journey with me. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on socials if they don't? We miss you on Twitter. I know that Twitter is unbearable. Yeah, I, 
I miss your reread. I was really enjoying that. Thread. I mean, I've been on Twitter. I was on Twitter for many years. I've been off it for the last, uh, whoa, geez, month, month and a half now, something like that. I, I, I'm not sure when I'll be back. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Are you on Instagram? Where can people find you? Uh, honestly, the, I, I don't think I'm worth following on Instagram. I, mostly, <laughs> I mean, I post pictures of my kid and I love my kid, but comic fans don't need to see that. Right. Um, well, people should check out X Men Monday every almost every week with you on um, AIPT. You could follow me on Twitter at Crackshot with a zero instead of an O. And if I come back, I'll talk about X Men again. I'm sure. Well, you'll have to you have to retweet this episode when I post it. I I, I literally have deleted it and are not logged in anymore <laughs> anywhere. So I, I I'll see. I'll try. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, and if there's anything you want to plug, you, you could also listen to Sailor Business if you like Sailor Moon. Uh, Sailor Business is on on uh, on most podcast platforms, not all of them, I think, but most of them. And uh, we're 190 episodes in. If you want to relive uh, Sailor Moon in a ridiculous way, honestly, I'm I'm a little intrigued. I can't. It's lie, fun. I, it's fun. I do love Sailor Moon. It's a lot so. of fun. The only bummer will be that you'll you'll you'll. It, you're too late to get any of the limited time merch that we did for a while back uh, in the day. People alas. always discover our podcast and are devastated that they can't get a pizza coffee t-shirt or a Bob Ford Oh t-shirt. my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again for being my guest and thank you to all of you out there who have been listening to this show, interacting on Twitter, writing into the email account. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can send your questions, comments, and feedback to Cerebro at Cerebrocast at gmail.com and you can find all of the episodes plus transcripts and visual histories of each character as I get them done. And there are more coming very soon, I promise, at Cerebrocast.com, which is the official landing page. I have some really exciting guests lined up over the next couple weeks, two more weeks with X-Office talent in a row coming up. So please stay tuned if you are into that. Thank you so much for your support. This has been a really wonderful experience, and I really relish the opportunity to speak with all of you about my favorite fictional universe and the only thing keeping me sane in month in month 616 of quarantine at this point so until next time everybody thanks for listening and we'll see you next week bye x-men x-men in the 21st century people mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world